Good evening, everybody. Welcome to tonight. I will not try to take too long. I have my friend here, Elder Brandon Nero. He was in the backstage having a nice, respectful discussion, just getting to know each other. One thing I never want to be accused of is being on time. And so I didn't fail that this evening. Glad you are here. If there's any uh, friends, family, people who are visiting from uh, coming to check out from Brandon's side, welcome here. Hope you enjoy our debate discussion this evening on Is Jesus the Holy Spirit? I think it's going to be a unique debate, and I'm looking forward to it. So uh, if you're new to the channel, please subscribe, hit like on that video for today, and enjoy the chat when you're having live chat. Be respectful. If you're a Trinitarian or Oneness, uh, please be respectful. There's nothing wrong with having opinions but just be respectful to each other. And then, of course, afterwards, please leave some comments of your thoughts of the debate afterwards. All right. I will bring up Brandon J. Nero. What does the J stand for, or is it a secret? Oh, no, it's it's Gerald. Uh, my mother, uh, I think she was just attempting to uh, make me different somehow. <laughs> right. uh, Gerald with a J. I like it. Yes, sir. I like it. Well, hey, welcome here. Glad to have you. Um, it's been, we kind of, you know, both had to kind of, you first had to postpone, then I had to postpone. And so now we are here. Right? Yes, sir. How's glad your day going? I hope good. Oh, it's going well. Hey, I'm glad to be here by the grace of God. Yeah, right on, right on. Now, uh, yeah. you are not new to debates. I've seen you are in the YouTube realm and also in the thing called Clubhouse that I am very, um, not familiar with at all, but it's uh, nice to have you here. I will say up front from what I've listened to you so far, uh, though, even like I mentioned a minute ago, I may have some differences, of course, and vice versa. Um, I have found you to be very uh, cordial, respectful, uh, and also very well-spoken. I will say that as well. Um, and so I'm looking forward to having a very good uh, debate discussion with you. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Right on, right on. Well, um, why don't you maybe take a, a few moments? You know, uh, I know you're a preacher, so, uh, you know, you, we both like to talk. I know this. Um, maybe share a little bit about, you know, your upbringing, uh, you know, who you were when you were before, where your your journey um, from your perspective and where you're at now. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Well, I am a native of Mobile, uh, Alabama. I'm the husband of one wife, uh, my wife of 10 years, Kavisha Nero. We have one child, uh, my only son, uh, Breland Nero. Uh, I am, of course, I was raised or more adopted by my great grandparents uh, who pastored and planted five churches in the city of Mobile. Uh, my grandfather is the late Bishop Zachariah Moore, who's a Trinitarian Holiness Bishop. Uh, and uh, that was my upbringing. Uh, came to the Lord when I was 14, received the Holy Ghost, so baptized in Jesus name. And uh, at age 17, through personal reflection and study, I uh, matriculated to a oneness worldview. Uh, but that's me. I played the saxophone and uh, I've written three books and I uh, try to keep learning. Wow. Now, let me ask the hard question. Are you a dog or a cat person? Uh, well, I'm not a cat person. My sister ruined that for me. <laughs> she, her cat was mean to me growing up. And, uh, I, I've asked my wife for a dog and she said, I'm not responsible enough. So she's at the <laughs> <of knowing> that. 
<laughs> so did you end up getting like a turtle? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, like you got a child. That's enough. Huh? I was like, hey, wow. That's yeah. You're not responsible for a dog, but you're responsible exactly. enough for a child. That, that makes sense. <laughs> that, that's what I see. <laughs> you can awesome. have a human. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm, you know, I love animals in general. I, I had dogs when I was growing up, of course, but typically for many years I've had cats. So I've kind of really turned to a cat guy over the years. And uh, yeah. so I, I love animals. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing. And how old are you, man? Are you like in your early thirties? Yes, sir. I'm 34 years old. 34. And how did, how long you've been married? I've been 10 years. 10 years. Congratulations on that. That's sir. nowadays you're a veteran. Okay. I, I, I can credit the people who raised me. That's good. That's good. Go good upbringing. My, uh, I've been married to my wife for going on 23 years and, uh, awesome. You know, it, sometimes it feels like yesterday and then sometimes it feels like forever, but I love every day of it. It's great. She's a wonderful spouse and a wonderful wife and wonderful friend in the Lord. Awesome. Um, well, I don't know how much you may or may not know about me and some of the people that might be watching that some of your family or friends or whoever could be watching. Uh, I'll just share maybe briefly a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm turning 52 this year, so I'm I'm the old man in the house here. Um, I became a Christian at the age of six. Um, in fact, my parents were not Christians when I was born. They both were actually atheists. My dad would be what you would label called uh, a God hater. And he became uh, a Christian by God's grace at the age of three, when I was three years of age anyway, sorry. And um, he had a radical change of life. He was very anti-God, had a pretty bad upbringing. So, I mean, I'm not necessarily justifying it, but he had his reasons. And so I can understand where he was coming from. And then uh, I was being raised now with this new perspective with my dad as a young child, but never forced, never coerced, anything like that. And by choice, I became a Christian uh, at the age of six. Of course, as a child, you know, I know much more now what it means to be a follower of Christ than I did back then. Um, but in my teenage years, I was uh, kind of went off the wild side for a time, got into sports, got into just your average teenage stuff, some of the party scene for a time. Um, doing different things. And so I really wasn't what you would call a churchgoer. But um, after I graduated in 1990, one of my friends that I used to hang out with, uh, who was an atheist, he uh, got in a car accident, uh, thought he became a Christian. Some ladies were sharing Jesus with him in a hospital of all places, right? You know, they still do that nowadays or not, I don't know. But um, back in the day, and um, calls me up and says, hey, Kelly, you know, I want to start going to church. I was like, you know what? That sounds really good because I've been actually prior to that, I was wanting to kind of get back into the, you know, following the Lord um, more, at least around fellowship with other Christians. And uh, long story short, because uh, I can drag this out and I can be a talker as well. Um, during that time, both of us being single men, living on our own, he started dating a girl. I didn't know much about her. She ended up being an LDS, Latter-day Saint. He got converted to Mormonism within a very short time because he didn't know any better, right? I got to meet his girlfriend. She tried to share the, you know, the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith stuff with me, but uh, I just didn't buy into it. And that was roughly 1991 timeframe. So I graduated in 1990 and a lot of that took place within the following year. And from there, this is where I believe that I really had a move of God in my life. What I would call being, you know, filled with the, the Holy Spirit, baptized the Holy Spirit, called by the Holy Spirit, whatever the right theological term would be for it. And I had such a desire for truth, to know Jesus, to know the gospel. Because I had friends that were 
Latter-day Saints, Jehovah's Witnesses, Catholics, Muslims. I grew up in Las Vegas for most of my life and um, also a SoCal boy as well. But I had lots of friends that were various beliefs. And I was like, well, these guys all say they believe in Jesus. Go to a church, read the Bible, been baptized, do these different things. I was like, well, really, you know, it's, is this like Burger King and In-N-Out and McDonald's? We're all just, you know, basically the same, just different labels, but really we're not, right? And so, um, or really we're not the same. And that's what I mean by that. And so I went on a journey, long story short really started learning what it means to know Jesus and um, started studying apologetics. I got involved being mentored and discipled on different pastors. I was involved with what's called Calvary Chapel. You may or may not be familiar with the movement Calvary Chapel. That's kind of my, mostly my background. So if you know a little bit about that. And so I got mentored and discipled under different pastors and leaders and involved in different ministries over the years. So for the last 30 years, I've been involved in Christian apologetics, involved in different kinds of ministries, serving in churches, and also now been doing stuff online, and I get to have great conversations with people like you. Sometimes it can be a little bit, I don't expect ours to be heated, but I've had some heated ones in the past with some other guys. You just, you never know, but I can kind of tell by talking to you, I don't, I don't foresee that happening. But uh, anyway, it's great to have you on. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Look, looking forward and glad to be here again. All right. All right. Well, we'll go over the that, that me and you have kind of agreed to. So for the audience out there. Um, try to save your questions, uh, towards the end when we kind of get towards our closing comments, because I know I'm going to probably, I, I will, if you do see it, give one, I'll try to put question all cap or something like that. That way we kind of know what it is and I'll try to star them. That way I can save them for later. But if, um, if you already sent it once before, try to send it again when we get towards our closing comments, because that way then I'll start again and we'll go through it. So, um, Oh, I hope you're still there, Brandon. You look like we lost it. Uh-oh. Not good. Mm. I can hear you. I can't. There you are. Now I can see you. There we there go. I'm not sure what happened. We, we used to just blame it on the devil. So that's just the devil. <laughs> Probably me. Somebody's <laughs> monkeying around with some stuff over there. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, so, all right. So we're going to, yeah. So the format is we both will have 15 minutes uh, openings. Um, Brandon will be starting off because he'll be having the affirmative. And uh, then we will both have two times of responses, a 10 minute and a five minute response. And then we will both then have a time of 25 minute cross examination each, um, just straight through. Some places like to split it up. I think kind of if you got 25 minutes, you can really use a lot of your momentum right there, I think. So I think it kind of helps in a way for the person's asking the questions. And then um, we'll have our five-minute closings, and then we'll get to the question and answer and try to keep it around a half hour or so uh, for the audience out there. And so, um, yeah, that sound about right? Sounds good to me. All right. Now, do you need to share screen or what? what I, we didn't even talk about that yet. Well, no, I didn't uh, prepare a presentation. Okay. Uh, you know, but I, I probably, maybe uh, at a different time, but no, I didn't prepare one. Okay. Fair enough. I want to make sure if you wanted to or not. So, um so what we'll do, like, uh, you know, the 15 minutes or whatever, um, once I'll have like an alarm, so I'll just kind of let it go, whatever, if you're not, you know, paying attention or whatever, but we'll have kind of a grace period, you know, like once we go over, maybe like, you know, all of a sudden we say time either side, have like, you know, 10, 15 seconds just to kind of wrap up our final thought. That way, at least we can try to finish what we were saying. Yes, sir. All right. Um, I'm going to get my clock ready for you and me here and.
great. Just get this set up here. All right. Um, whenever you're ready to go, I'll just get it going and I'll remove myself. All right. And again, I thank you for having me here tonight. As a oneness Pentecostal believer, I will affirm the positive position tonight related to this debate's thesis, namely that the Holy Spirit that indwells believers is none other than the God of all creation revealed through Jesus Christ by incarnation and manifested to in and for believers by the reception of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not a distinct spirit from the person of the Father, but is the same spirit that resurrected and tabernacled in Christ by incarnation. My affirmative position uh, tonight will be uh, supported by three central premises that are attested to by the holistic witness of Scripture. Premise one will be the Holy Ghost is the one spirit of the unipersonal God. Premise two will be the unipersonal God of the Old and New Testament, who is the spirit, has revealed himself as the father of humanity and the spirit poured out upon believers on the day of Pentecost. Premise three is that the unipersonal God of the Old and New Testament became resident by incarnation as the man, Jesus Christ. Premise one, the Holy Ghost is the one spirit of the unipersonal God. In dispelling the misconceptions of disunity that existed in the Corinthian church, the Apostle Paul capitalized upon the truth of the oneness of God to explain the illogical systems of social strata that developed in the church of Corinth based upon multiple persons of influence within their congregation. The Apostle Paul says, as he works to solidify the per the person or the need for unity in 1 Corinthians 12 and 11, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of operations but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one member is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these work of that one and self same Spirit, dividing to every Every man severally as he will. For as the body is one and have many members, and all the members of that one body being one, being our one body, so also is Christ. As demonstrated by the scriptural witness that we have been given uh, in 1 Corinthians 12, we understand as one as Pentecostals that the term Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit, Spirit of God are all interchangeable terms that identify the invisible or manifested working of God through and for his body according to his divine essence. Now, as we go further in understanding what the, the Holy Ghost is or who the Holy Ghost is, point B of this premise is that a secondary reason that we understand the Holy Ghost to be the Spirit of God or the Spirit of the Lord Jesus is that operationally speaking, that when one is Pentecostal believers speak of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost, we are simply speaking of the self-same Spirit that dwelt in the man Christ Jesus by incarnation that has been given back to us for the purpose of glorification and expanding the kingdom of God. It is the same spirit that anoints us, that empowers us to do the will of God in this current dispensation. Uh, an example of this would be uh, in God's working, as we see in the Old Testament, is that in Genesis 1 and 2, we're told that the spirit of God moved upon the faces of the water. This demonstrates the operational functionality of the essence of God and working and causing things to come to pass. 
Premise two, the unipersonal God of the Old and New Testament, who is the spirit, has revealed himself as the father of humanity and also the spirit that has been poured out upon believers on the day of Pentecost. The Bible calls the Holy Spirit in the Old and New Testament, the spirit of the Lord, Isaiah 40, 13, spirit of God, Genesis 1 and 2, spirit of the father, Matthew 10 and 12. Now, these are all terms that are bringing us to the point of understanding that the same spirit that worked in the Old Testament is now the selfsame spirit that works within believers in the New Testament dispensation. This is attested to according even further to the witness of Jesus uh, when he says that the father of humanity has revealed himself as the God, the father, uh, as a spirit, that selfsame spirit that we worship from uh, our life point in Jesus and the true incarnational sense, worship God in his true humanic humanity uh, as an aspect of what we call the communicado idiomatum. In his humanity and as his true human nature, pray to the divine spirit and in and out of the incarnation. And what I posit as a type of modalistic, uh, modified, extra Calvinistic, as you will. This is easily seen in John 4, 24, when the Lord says, Jesus says unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the father. You worship ye know not what we know what we worship being the Jews for salvation is of the Jews verse 23 but the hour cometh and now is when when the true worshipers shall worship the father in spirit and in truth for the father seeketh such to worship him God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth the spirit is given from the father as recorded in the words of Jehovah Joel 2 27 through 29 he says that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now, this should be easily understood that from the Jewish mindset of the Old Testament, the same Holy Ghost that they received in the New Testament was the same spirit that was essentially the essence of the Father in the Old Testament. Peter took this prophecy from Joel, which is inarguably from a Jewish understanding, the spirit of the Father in the Old Testament, and he connected it to Acts 2, that this which you now see in here, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Premise three, the universal God of the Old and New Testament became resident by incarnation as the man, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is used interchangeably, uh, being called the spirit of Jesus in Philippians 1, 19, and the spirit of the son, Galatians 4 and 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 says that the one spirit uh, is who we exactly know him to be as one as Pentecostals, that now the Lord is that spirit. The NIV puts it in a plainer sense when it says now the Lord is the spirit and the Lord who is the spirit in verse 18. The spirit that was and is resident by incarnation in the man Jesus Christ is none other than the Holy Spirit, which is essentially the spirit of the almighty God, our father. The spirit is the son. Uh, the spirit in the son is what we refer to as the Holy Ghost. Now, this can be proven by parallel verses of scripture, which 
further reveal that the spirit of Christ is the Holy Ghost. Now, this is proven by the fact that the spirit of Christ was in the prophets of old, 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. Yet we know that it was the Holy Ghost that moved upon the prophets of old, 2 Peter 1, 21. Jesus has told uh, us that we will be raised from the dead uh, by him in St. John 6 and 40. Yet it is the spirit who quickens and gives life to the dead, Romans 8 and 11. The spirit raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8, 9 through 11. Yet Jesus Jesus said that he would raise himself from the dead. John 2 verses 19 through 21. John 14, 16 says that the father would send another comforter, namely the Holy Ghost. Yet in John 14 and 18, Jesus said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. In the other words, we find that the comforter is not another person, but simply the same God that the disciples already knew and experienced in their uh, sojourn with the Lord in his earthly ministry. Jesus promised them that this another comforter that would come would simply be someone they would already know because he was already dwelling with them. Who was dwelling with them, dear listeners? The only person that they knew, the only person that they had a relationship was the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus explained this further in verse 17 by saying that the comforter was with the disciples already, but he would soon be in them. In other words, the Holy Ghost was with them in the person of Jesus, but the Holy Ghost, the spirit of Jesus soon would be in them as we would see fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Jesus further explained this point in St. John 16 and 7 by saying that he had to go away or else the comforter would not come. He, of course, was speaking in a corporeal sense. Why? Let me demonstrate this with a threefold answer. First, if Jesus was present with them in the flesh corporally, he would not be present spiritually in their hearts. But after he physically departed, he would send back his own spirit to be with them by being in them. Secondly, the Holy Ghost abides in the hearts of Christians, St. John 14, 16, which correlates to Jesus's promises that he would abide with his followers to the end of the world, according to the witness of Matthew 28 and 20. Thirdly, believers are filled with the Holy Ghost. Thank you, Lord. Acts 2 and 4 at verse 38. Yet it is Christ who dwells in us. Colossians 1, 27. Ephesians 3, 16 through 17 says that by having the spirit in the inner person, we have Christ in our hearts. The truth realized in this matter is only fully demonstrated in the minds of the New Testament writers who understood him. Christ sanctifies the church according to Ephesians 5:26, but yet according to verse Peter verse uh, chapter 1 and 2, the spirit does this. The Holy Ghost is the promised Paracletos uh, in St. John 14, 26. Yet Jesus is our Paracletos, according to 1 John 2 and 1. Same Greek word translated as advocate in the King James Version. Note, the same human writer, John, who penned one part, also penned the other part. It is my presentation tonight that the authors of the New Testament understood perfectly who the comforter was, that that one who was the comforter 
that one who would be with them always was the realized promise of Jesus being in them as the indwelling Holy Ghost. What is even more important to recognize is that we understand that our mediator or intercessor, according to Romans 8, 26, is the spirit. Yet Jesus, according to Hebrews 7 and 25, is our intercessor. Now, what are you simply trying to say? Could it be the same man that they knew that was incarnate, God living with them, truly God, truly man, was giving them a glimpse of a relationship that would only evolve to a higher level of intimacy as the time progressed? What is of even more interest is that when we look at Acts 16, uh, verses 6 through 7, we find that there is a vision that has appeared to uh, Paul to tell them not to go on a particular course that they were taking. The King James says that this, the Holy Ghost warned them not to go. But we find as we look into the language and the ESV and more modern translations, my favorite in particular, the NET, it makes it very clear that the spirit of Jesus uh, in the genitive is the one that forbid them not to come. Could it be, dear listeners and friends, that the same spirit that dwelt in Jesus, that now dwells in us, that will abide in us and quicken us, is Christ in us, Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is attested to even further in the book of Revelation when we look at the Lord's address to the seven churches of Asia Minor, where he talks to uh, Ephesus, uh, Pergamum, uh, Thyatira, and all of these, all the other churches. At the end of all of the addresses, the Lord makes it very clear who talking to them. He says at, at the end of every dress, he that had an ear, let him hear what the spirit is saying to the church. Well, who was talking to them? Well, we know that it was Jesus, but he would end it by letting them know that this was his spirit. Well, how did this correlate to the earlier witness of the writings of scripture? Well, in Acts 1, it tells us that the former treatise, have I written to thee, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus both began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After that, he through the Holy Ghost, gave commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. He did not come back physically and give them commandments, but through his spirit, abiding with them and in them to the ends of the world, he fulfilled his promise as being their advocate and high priest, being their mediator and the one to whom they are mediated to. And with that, I yield my opening statement in Jesus' name. That goes fast, 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 fast. All right, all right. All right. Let me reset that there. Thank you very much, um, Brandon. Appreciate that. And it's gonna fix my mic there a little bit. There we go. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Let me reset my um, alarm here. Actually, start timer. And good stuff. Okay, I'll get that going there. All right, appreciate that very much. All right, I'm going to put myself on the screen and I'll hit my clock here. All right, good stuff, good stuff. Thank you very much. I appreciate um, the opening, lots of notes. I couldn't keep up with all of them, I'm sure. Uh, we never can obviously respond to every single thing, so I'll do my best when I get to my responses. But if I miss something, it's not intentional. Okay, now let's uh, get to the screen here. Now, what I'm going to plan to do here is I'm going to go through some scriptures. These are scriptures I'm just going to have on the screen for people to follow along. Now, this is in the Gospel of John chapter 1. 
I'm going to walk us through uh, some scriptures primarily in the Gospel of John. In fact, what I would like to also make a quick note here, when we're looking at the topic, the subject, if you will, who is the Holy Spirit? One of the things that we see that is, in my opinion, the most important area is to look at what did Jesus teach, which Brandon did point a few scriptures, of course, to in his opening. But I want to look to what did Jesus teach? This is, in my opinion, where it's all at. This is where we learn the most about who the Holy Spirit is, what he will do, what his purpose and his mission is, and namely how that applies to us today. So on the screen, this is just after Jesus has been resurrected, or sorry, baptized, my apology. Just after he's been baptized by John the Baptist, says the next day he saw Jesus coming to him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that it might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Here, this debate mainly is not about the Trinity verse oneness, but it will obviously have some overlap, as we obviously heard a moment ago. Here we see the Father who is sending. We see the Holy Spirit coming down upon Jesus and remaining upon him. So here's one of the first instances that we see the Holy Spirit being involved early on. Now, one of the things that's interesting, too, in John chapter 7, in John chapter 7, Jesus is having some teachings. And it says in verse 37, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, John gives us a commentary. What is going on here? But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, future tense, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, this is something that was not familiar with them at that time. Brandon quoted and went to John 14. In John 14, one of the, this is one of the first direct references that Jesus speaks about who the Holy Spirit is. In John 14, verse 16, we see Jesus stating, I will ask the Father, that's person number one, and he will give you another helper, that's person number two, that he may be with you forever. So we see two distinct persons other than Jesus being mentioned. Now what's interesting here, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. The word another helper there, that word another in Greek is the Greek word alos. As you can see on your screen, I have a few places you can look up later. Bible Hub Interlinear gives the reference there, alos, another of the same kind. This denotes numerical, a distinction, one who is from, but not the same. 
there's a qualitatively difference. Now, there's also interesting here enough, denotes simply a distinction of individuals. It involves a secondary idea of difference of kind. That is the Greek word heteros that we see over here. Dr. Sporos Zodiades states, who is a Greek scholar concerning the word alos, another numerically, but of the same kind, different than what we would see heteros, another qualitatively, another the same race, another the same nation. Vines puts it, alos expresses a numerical difference and denotes another of the same sort. Heteros expresses a qualitatively difference and denotes another of a different sort. Why is that important? It's important because as we're looking at scripture, Jesus makes it abundantly clear, in my opinion, from scripture, from biblical exegesis, that this helper, this comforter to come, this spirit of truth is not being spoken of being Jesus. This is another who is of the same kind, same sort, same by nature, but one who is distinct from. This is Greek understanding how the word alos can be applied. Jesus goes on to say that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. Now, let's just kind of stop there for a minute. If Jesus was supposed to be the Holy Spirit, these words would not make a lot of sense. Does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. There's an interesting couple of phrases here. He abides with you. The word with you there in Greek is the Greek word para, means that the Holy Spirit was alongside them. He was alongside them. Will be in you, future tense, is the Greek word ain. So we see a twofold Jesus speaking about who the Holy Spirit is and what's going to be taking place. He abides with you and future tense will be in you. That's why when we look at John 7, when we look a minute ago, the Holy Spirit spoke of the Spirit. Those who believed in were to receive future tense, future tense. The second main place that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit is in John 15. Sorry, John 14, just a few verses later. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So this is the second place in the Gospel of John he speaks about the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So again, we see the distinctions. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send. The Father sends the Holy Spirit. He will come and he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance what I've said to you. In John 15, 26, that I was by accidentally jumping ahead, John 15, 26, it states on the screen, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Notice that we see these pronouns, I, he, me, him, distinction of persons. In fact, when you're looking at John 14, verse 16, and the different places of John 14, verse 16 and 17, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, verses 7 through 15, 29 distinct times Jesus speaks in reference to the Holy Spirit, distinct from himself and distinct from the Father. Jesus makes reference of himself 18 times and the Father seven. What does that mean? It shows that there is a distinction of persons.
That's a very, very important to get. Now, in John 16, you can see on the screen here, going back to verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Actually, let's back up just a little bit. I'm going to him who sent me. So Jesus is going away. None of you ask where I'm going, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Pay attention to these pronouns here. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Look at the following few verses. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But he, look at the pronouns again, he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative. Whatever he hears, he will speak, he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Simple, basic reading skills, not saying to anybody out there, just saying when we're looking at the pronouns, there is unequivocally no doubt distinctions of persons being involved here with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, a little while ago, I was reading to you from John, when it talks about that those who were to believe in him, or were, who did believe in him, were to receive the Holy Spirit in the future tense. In John 20, 22, a familiar passage, after Jesus has been resurrected, he appears to his disciples. Now, we know the, the story of Thomas wasn't there. Thomas came a little after. But he appears to his disciples, and he said to them in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I send you. Now look at verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He didn't say receive me. He said receive the Holy Spirit. This is what was being spoken of in John 14, John 15, and John 16. Now that Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ, has been glorified, after his crucifixion and resurrection, now the promise of the Holy Spirit can come. And this is where they would have received the Holy Spirit, what we'd have the conversion experience. Later, what we would see in Acts would be the upon experience, when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Acts 1.8, Jesus said, remain here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses throughout all places of the world, right? What's interesting here, too, we see that in 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 through 14, John, who is the apostle who is writing the Gospel of John, who is a firsthand eyewitness of Jesus Christ, would have firsthand knowledge of these things. Notice what he says here. 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So that's the father sent the son into the world. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has seen God at any time. That would be a fun verse to really dissect because people saw God multiple times in the Old Testament, yet Jesus said no one has ever seen the Father in John 6.46, but that's a different debate. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his, his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Again, noticing the distinctions of persons. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So in my last minute of wrapping up here, closing thoughts, and I have just over a minute. The Holy Spirit, the debate not, is not about is, is the Holy Spirit God, because as a Trinitarian, of course, I affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit being eternal, being involved in creation, being involved in our salvation, being involved also in the resurrection of Christ. These are all things that I would absolutely, completely affirm. The debate today is, is the Holy Spirit Jesus or is Jesus the Holy Spirit? When looking at the teachings of Jesus, just Jesus alone, it is unequivocally clear from Jesus, who is the primary source here, about knowing who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit was sent by both the Father and sent from the Son. The Holy Spirit comes to testify of the Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness. The Holy Spirit only came after Christ was crucified and resurrected. So, as I close, all that I ask everyone out there, Trinitarian or Oneness, be Bereans, pay attention to the pronouns, pay attention to how Jesus defines both the Father, himself as the Son, the distinctions, and the Holy Spirit. And I'll leave it at that as the bell goes off. All right. Apparently it's still going. <laughs> All right. We will bring Brandon back up there as the bells were blanging, clanging there. Time goes fast, brother, huh? All right. All right. Yes, sir. Okay, so um, that was both our first openings up there. So what now is we'll have our rebuttals, responses, whatever you want to call them. We both have 10 minutes, and then our second one will be the five minutes. So I will just put you on the screen, and whenever you start speaking, I'll hit the clock. And again, thank you so much. I really really appreciate uh, your opening statement. I found it to be very well detailed and easy to follow, probably easier than mine talking as fast as I did. But I did want to examine a few of the scriptural texts that you did present. And I think starting uh, with one of the first witnesses you gave, of course, which was the baptism of Jesus being in uh, St. John, the third chapter, which usually I think is a very good proof of the oneness of God because it demonstrates the omnipresence of the Lord. And I believe you started off uh, mentioning the incidents, excuse me, St. John 1, I apologize, uh, 29, dealing with the appearance of Christ Jesus to John the Baptist. 
And I'm just going to read really quickly on some of the high points that you presented. And the next day, John, seeing Jesus coming unto him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. This is of whom I said, After me cometh the man who is preferred before me, because he was before me, showing his eternity. And I knew him not. And notice, John is saying that he did not know him not, right? But that he should be made manifest to Israel. Now, this is the context of why this whole scene is taking place. Therefore, I am come baptizing with water. This is a part of the appearing of Jesus, which is the coronation of his ministry as the high priest in his humanity. And John bear record saying, how did John bear record? I saw I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode on him. The first thing that we have to really uh, look at when understanding this is a theophany uh, that he is seeing. Now, why do you say that? Well, when it comes to being God, whether you're a Trinitarian or a oneness believer, uh, we understand that the spirit of God is omnipresent. So in a technical definition, since spirits, the spirit of God does not travel for how can he travel to a place that he already is? So when John said that I saw him, this is a theophany for whose sake, the sake of John so that he could identify him as being the anointed Messiah, God incarnate. This was not a case of the spirit leaving geographical place point a going to point B because by definition, the spirit shares the omnis from a Trinitarian worldview. So this would not be traveling, but a manifestation so that John would know exactly who it is. Now, what is of most importance is that usually this instance is used as a proof text to show that this is a, I guess, a manifestation of the Trinity. I would say that this context is no more evidence for the Trinity than, let's say, Acts 2, when they had a multi-sensory manifestation of the Spirit uh, appearing to them in uh, cloven tongues, them seeing fire, hearing the tongue, sensation, three senses, but we would not say they're three spirits. We understand it's the one spirit operating omnipresently in multifaceted manifestations. Now, what's important in St. John 14 and 16, and I love this passage personally, Jesus does talk about asking the father, uh, sending another comforter. Now, two things are going on within the life of Jesus. We have to understand the working of the incarnation or better yet, what operation of the incarnation is demonstrating an example of what I understand to be nature perichoresis. Uh, and for reference, you can look at Oliver D. Crisp, page number four, Divinity and Humanity. Now, what is taking place here? Jesus is saying that I'm going to ask the Father. When we have Jesus speaking of asking the Father, this is a reference of him praying or operating within his humanity as the true priest or the mediator between God and man. Thus, you see this example in the high priestly prayers that are demonstrated in St. John 17. I believe it's Maximus the Confessor who uses this as an example of early uh, perichoresis or nature perichoresis when we see the high priestly prayers of Jesus. So when Jesus says, I'm going to ask or pray, this is simply Christ incarnate as a man praying to the divinity. Now, another comforter of the same kind, I totally agree because they already had a comforter that they knew. They already had a comforter that was with them and they already had a comforter that they understood. But let us pay close attention. Who is this comforter? Because if this comforter has to be sent, then who in the world is it that they already know? The only person that they already knew was Jesus. Now, how do you lean so heavily, Elder Nero, on these metaphorical interpretations of the Lord's uh, Last Supper discourse, which starts in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16? Well, the reason this is 
is because the Lord says, I believe in St. John 16, 25 through 26, that I have spoken to you these things in Proverbs or parables. Uh, this is in the Lord's Last Supper discourse. And there are commentators that would attest to this. You have to understand this conversation to be in the context of him speaking parabolically. Thus, the apostles consistent conversation. Uh, Lord, speak plainly to us of the father. They did not even understand the things that were going on. But we understand that when we see Jesus speaking of him in the first person or speaking, how else would he as a true man speak of the divine nature? What we have to understand in my theology, at least, is that in order to understand the uniqueness of the incarnation, Jesus has to be able to relate to God in his humanity the same way that we do. So from a oneness Pentecostal perspective, I would not have difficulty seeing pronouns, uh, actually, because I do believe the incarnation or uh, the hypostatic union is a reality. I would expect nothing less than him using pronouns, him relating to God as a true man or better yet, as Hebrews saying, praying in the days of his flesh. Now, there's another passage that we looked at, St. John 20, 22, that Jesus said that he was going to breathe on them and they were going to receive the Holy Ghost. Now, what is important here is to look at this thing sequentially. Now, I always ask the question, who throws a ball? And then when the person catches, it says catch. Now, so this is obviously a prophetic figure of what was to come. How do you know that? Because when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place with one accord. Then suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they were filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, how do you know this is the beginning? Because Jesus told them to go tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued within power. Acts 1 and 8, ye shall receive power after, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If they had already received the Holy Ghost? Why would Jesus therefore then go tell them to get something that they already had? This is attested to by the clear testimony of Peter in Acts 11, when he is given an account of affiliating with the Gentiles, which I believe if anybody can give us a good understanding of what they received, it would be the man Peter in Acts 11 uh, at verse uh, 14, who shall tell thee the words uh, whereby thou and thy house shall be saved. Uh, and as I begin to speak, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Ghost, fell on them and on us at the beginning. Uh, this same experience of the Holy Ghost falling in, baptizing, these are all synonymous terms, talking about the same spirit. So I don't believe based upon the scripture witness of the testimony of the apostles that we can make a clear, consistent argument that they had not received, uh, that they received the Holy Ghost in St. John 20 and 22, because Peter makes it clear that the Gentiles in Acts 10 received it just like they did from the beginning, which was in Acts 2. And it was Peter who picked up the promise of the Lord from Joel 2, when he said that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, upon your sons and your daughters. Now notice the father is saying that he's pouring the spirit out, but Jesus said he's going to give it out. What's taking place? Because it's going to be God in Christ incarnate, reconciling the world unto himself by giving us his spirit. This is why we can say that Christ truly dwells within us. We look uh, at uh, the gospel, I believe uh, Brother Kelly referenced 1 John 4 verses 9 through 14. Now, this is interesting uh, when it says that God sent his son into the world. I think that 
we have to understand again, if I am to accept, I guess, and I'm not sure if Brother Kelly is a social or monarchical Trinitarian, but in both of these circumstances, the son would be omnipresent, therefore limited from traveling because as God in his divine nature, how can he travel to a place that he already was? So how are we to understand these sending statements, these, these statements of transition and travel? Well, this is in reference to the earthly mission of Christ, just like there was a man that was sent from God whose name was John, but we would not presuppose that this was ascending from heaven uh, all the way down to the earth. Jesus said, I am the matter that came down from heaven. Thank you, Jesus. And this matter that came down from heaven, we know he spoke of his flesh. So if the Lord could speak of this figuratively. We, with all assurance of faith, can understand that this is in reference to the assignment of being sent into the world. I believe it's in St. John 17 in the Lord's high priestly prayers that he said, just like you sent me into the world, we're going to send them into the world. But we understand that he is talking about the sending that he has experienced as a true man, that they will experience in their, uh, how can you say, their commissioning to fulfill the assignment of the Lord. This one spirit that Jesus promised that would come, he said, I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the world. We can truly say that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. I yield my response. Thank you. <laughs> my timer went off. Good stuff. All right. Time flies. Good stuff. Good stuff. Sorry. That was our first response. Appreciate it there very much. Thank you very much. Whew. Goes fast. Goes fast. All right. We're going to put me on the screen here. And you just got yourself muted. I'll get myself started here as well. Thank you, uh, Brandon. Appreciate um, the good discussion so far. So I'm going to, uh, you know, you kind of just scratch the surface of some things I touched, and I'm going to try and hit some of the main points of what you were sharing uh, from the start there. So um, 1 Corinthians 12, which is interesting to me, um, there's many things about the Spirit of God uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, when I'm looking at 1 Corinthians 12, it talks about even like the, the first opening few verses, it says that no one can say Jesus is accursed speaking by the Spirit of God. It's interesting to me because then it says that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So right away, we're seeing a distinction of persons right from the start about who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where you kind of started off in your opening from some of your stuff, and I didn't write everything down, so I do apologize. But the verse, next few verses says in verse 4, Now there are varieties of gifts with the same Spirit, the varieties of ministries, same Lord, and the varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. It's interesting here. It says same spirit, same Lord, and same God. This is what you would actually classify as a Trinitarian formula here, showing distinctions of the spirit being the Holy Spirit, same Lord in reference to Jesus, and in reference to God the Father, because that's normally Paul's um, dissertation when he's writing different things or his opening and his greetings, normally something in effect of, uh, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But a lot of this text here is working with the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to note, too, when you continue on, verse 11, it says the one and the same Spirit works all these things, talking about these different gifts and different callings. I would not, from any of these verses at all, looking, I'm very familiar with 1 Corinthians 12, and maybe you can 
bring it up later and try to present your case. But I see nothing here that would indicate anything at all, indicating that this would be equating Jesus with being uh, the Holy Spirit. One of the things you do bring up, which is interesting too, that is in John 4, another scripture you brought up. Now, he's talking to the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman, for the most part, Samaritans were kind of a mixed of the Assyrians and Jews, and they believed also in the Lord, Yahweh, but they also believed in other gods as well. It's interesting, the story, for the sake of time, we know that Jesus reveals to her that she's had five husbands, the one she's with now. She's like, how do you know this? You must be a prophet. Then Jesus goes on to say, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. And I think that's probably a common ground for a lot of us who are Trinitarian, Oneness, Jehovah's Witnesses, Latter-day Saints, Muslim, Unitarians. We're all seeking truth. We're all wanting to be biblical, of course, but we all can't be right. And I know Brandon would agree with him there. So as sincere as we both are, one of us has to be in error, or we both could be in error. But one thing is for sure, we both are not right. He goes on to say, verse 22, you worship that which you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Now, I won't get into all of it. This says, I know the King James says God is a spirit and all that. I'm not going to get into all that right now with translation stuff, but God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I believe in this text, in the context of what Jesus is teaching here, is that God is spirit. That is who God is by nature. God is not of creation. God's not like us, right? In the sense of, you know, his eternal nature, his eternal attributes, being all-knowing, all-powerful, from everlasting to everlasting, those kind of things, right? God is spirit. But what's interesting is Jesus is pointing this Samaritan woman to trust in him. And we see the following verse that she actually asks him or says, you know, I know the Messiah is coming who is called Christ, and he'll declare all things to me. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am that one. You went to... Um, I think this is kind of probably a good gist of, I think, the argument that I've heard today and from some of your other discussions about the Spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit, or I think you didn't, I don't know if you heard it said it today, but the Father Spirit. So from my understanding, you're equating all three to essentially be the same, um, but they're all different manifestations. In Philippians 1, it says, uh, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that, yes, we can see at times where the wording will be, say, Spirit of Christ or Christ Spirit, or it'll say the Father Spirit or just say the Spirit of God, things like that. I believe in each of those cases, it's still all pointing to the same one Holy Spirit. It'd be almost the same thing as saying, like, talking about the Father. Well, the Father in Scripture is called God the Father. The Father is also called God. The Father is also called Holy Father. But yet at times we can see varieties of how it's been written down in different places, but yet it would all still be the same Father. So when we're looking at when it says the, the Father, Spirit, or Christ, Spirit, or the Holy Spirit, this is all still pointing to who the Holy Spirit is. It wouldn't be taken away or making it any more confusing. Now, one of the things interesting, too, is that when we're looking at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 
three you brought up, which is interesting to me, which, you know, it's interesting. I, I will completely admit, I remember years ago when, you know, being a Trinitarian and being, getting into apologetics early on in the 1990s, I actually, you'll, you'll laugh. I actually used to use second Corinthians three as a proof text that that was talking about Jesus. And in my ignorance, I didn't read the context of what was actually being stated in second Corinthians chapter three In second Corinthians chapter three, prior to that verse, what we see going on is interesting. Back in verses one through three, he's talking about the letter of the law versus the letter of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of our human hearts. Verse three, verse four, such confidence we have through Christ Jesus Christ toward God. For such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Again, distinctions of persons. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us adequate servants of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Now look at that, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What is going on here? The context here is that the spirit here is talking about the spirit of freedom. Now, being in Christ, we're no longer under that veil, the old covenant of the old ways of condemnation and judgment. But now in Christ, we are now in the new covenant through the spirit. For the sake of time, verses 7 through um, 12, talking about that veil being removed, the spirit coming and revealing this glory and things like that. So when we get to verse 17, where it says, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord, there is liberty. It's not teaching. There, this is not in any way teaching that Jesus is, is the Holy Spirit. That is not anywhere found here at all, nor in any of Paul's epistles. Nowhere to be found in his epistle. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, talks about that, um, um, talking about being uh, with God, with Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit shows distinctions of persons. And I'll probably share that a little bit later. However, the sake of time, time is moving fast here. You brought up the resurrection of Jesus and talking about Romans 8, 9 through 11. Great text, by the way, talking about the spirit of him who raised him from the dead. Yes and amen. Even um, Romans 1, 4 and 5 talks about that. 1 Peter 3, 18 talks about this. The Holy Spirit, he, distinct person from Jesus and the Father, was involved. Jesus says in John 2, 19 through 21, yes, I will raise myself. And he also says in Romans 6, 3 and 4, that the Father, Paul says in notes and other places, that the Father was involved in the resurrection of Jesus. Yet the Bible says in Acts 2, 32, that God raised Jesus. These are actually Trinitarian verses that I use all the time when talking to Jehovah Witnesses Unitarians. So these are verses that we would use for support, showing distinctions of persons. As I'm under a minute now, I'm going to wrap up with my final thoughts to you. I know I didn't get to everything and what you shared and neither do you with me. I appreciate what you're sharing. And I think when we get to our cross-examination of being able to ask questions openly and flowing back and forth, this is where the rubber will hit the road, and this is where the, the gist of our conversation will go. So I thank you, and I'll bring you up. All right. Set my timer here. Five minutes now. Countdown of five. That's like a blink of an eye. 
All right, I will put you on the screen. And when you're ready to start talking, I'll hit the clock. All right, again, and thank you so much. I think that was a very detailed uh, response to uh, some of my uh, contentions of, I guess, understanding the oneness viewpoint of the spirit. Uh, but I did want to spend a little time uh, focusing on St. John 14, uh, beginning with 16, to give just a few of my observations as to why I think St. John 14 is a beautiful proof of the oneness of God. Now, when looking in St. John 14 and 16, it's important to understand that Jesus promised to send another comforter, as you so well uh, articulated. But in verse 26, he identified the comforter as the Holy Ghost. This is a, a, a variable of identification that is true throughout the, the rest of these parabolic sayings in the Lord's uh, Last Supper discourse. Now, we would have to understand, does this imply that the Holy Ghost is another person in the Godhead who is coming? As a oneness believer, I, of course, would affirm the negative to that. It is clear from the context that the Holy Ghost, from what I believe, is simply the spirit of the Lord Jesus and dwelling within us uh, in a new form of manifestation. Now, when we look at the phrase, the other comforter, it means that Jesus is going to come in the spirit as opposed to how he already existed, being with him in flesh. In verse 16, Jesus told the disciples about the other comforter. Then in verse 17, Jesus told them that they already knew the comforter already. Now, this is important to pin into our theological hats. How did they already know the comforter? Now, again, if this comforter has to be sent, how do they already know them? Jesus said, you already know him. You don't have to figure it out. How do we know him, Jesus? Because he dwelt with them. Really, he's dwelling with us. Well, if that's the case, we should already know well who was dwelling with them jesus god enfleshed or incarnate in flesh and that this indwelling god that was with them uh para i believe that was mentioned which i would wholeheartedly agree with as a oneness pentecostal he would eventually uh come to reside within them uh fulfilling his promises that he would be with them always even until the ends of the world now what we go further into this uh, he said to them, it is expedient that I go away. Well, why is it expedient? Because if I don't go away, the comforter will not come. And it is this leaving that the Holy Spirit, which will be the spirit of Christ, according to Romans 8, 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, that he would come. And when we have the spirit in us, we essentially, according to Ephesians 3, uh, 16 through 17, have that same spirit dwelling within us. I think reading the passage and embracing the promise of what the Lord said about the spirit dwelling within us is paramount to understanding what he's saying. Another passage that was mentioned that I hold very dear, uh, as uh, Brother Kelly uh, went into great detail on, is uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, uh, dealing with the uh, the deliverance of the children of Israel from their belief. They were so unbelief, so rooted into the, uh, how can you say, just they just wanted to hold on to what they already knew. Now, what's interesting when we look at verse 16, nevertheless, when it shall, when it shall turn to the Lord. Now let's start with verse 10, but their minds were blinded for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the old Testament, which veil is done away in 
Christ. Now hear this, but even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their hearts. What a sad situation to be in. But verse 16 tells us the solution. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, ah, who is this Lord that they're turning to? Who is this Lord that they're turning to? The veil shall be taken away. Now we know the veil is taken away in Christ. So if the veil is taken away in Christ. They must be turning to Jesus. They were not denying God, the father. They were denying God in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Now the Lord is that spirit. Now we must ask ourselves something. He is speaking of the situation of monotheistic Jews from my belief. They were unipersonal. Why would they struggle with the idea that the Lord is spirit, right? Think about this because we already know from St. John 4 that even the Samaritan woman understood that God is a spirit by her discourse with Jesus. It is because they did not accept that Jesus was their Lord. And But we all with an open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the same spirit of the Lord. And there's a greater exposition of that given in 2 Corinthians 4. Thank you so much. Yes, indeed, it goes quick. All right. Thank you again. Appreciate it. And uh, we're getting close to the meat and potatoes of our conversation, as most people love to get to. So good stuff here. I'll start my clock here now. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um Let's uh, put this up there and put that up there. So I'm just going to put this up quickly here because I'm, I'm, I'm respond mainly to John 14 and John or 2 Corinthians 3. So here, if you see on the screen, folks, and also for you as well, Brandon, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. So we notice distinctions right here. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, two distinct there. He, the Father, will give you another as mentioned before, the word another is the Greek word alos. I had mentioned this before, um, just so people can see it on the screen. Another numerically, but of the same kind. So when we're looking at John 14, what we're seeing here is Jesus is talking about this one who's to come. Now, what's been noted by Brandon here is, well, how could they not know him or know him but not see him, and yet he's yet to come? The world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him. Well, how do they know him? Well, knowing has that word knowing there is, uh, if I remember correctly, um, horeo, meaning to experience or to understand. It may be wrong on that Greek word for my memory right now, but meaning to know or to understand. The Holy Spirit's been working in their life. He abides. That word with is the Greek word para, means alongside. But future tense will be in you. As I mentioned earlier in John 2022, 20, when I was talking about John 2022, 20, um, when the Holy Spirit was Jesus breathed on them, the Greek word there is the Greek word emphosao, emphosao. Sometimes it talks about when he uses the word, it literally means to be breathed into. He breathed into them the Holy Spirit. This was the fulfillment of what Jesus was stating was to come. So therefore, John 14, verse 16 and 17, 
John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and John 16, 7 through 15. All these different passages that Jesus is saying, look, if I don't go away, meaning if I don't get crucified and resurrected, the Holy Spirit, he will not be able to come to you because this, this fulfills and brings into fulfillment what was prophesied and also in reference to the new covenant. And so we'll get into that in our discussion, but I really want to make it very clear here. This word with is the Greek word para. This word over here, in, is the Greek word aim, meaning in, to be in. And this is what John 2022 20, is talking about. And when you read in Acts 1 8 and many other places about the Holy Spirit coming upon them, it's the Greek word epi, E P I, meaning came upon them, empowers them, fills them for works of ministry and service, a threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, as Brandon was re referencing here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, once again, he brings up again, you know, this is where a lot of discussion can definitely go to. As mentioned before, I just want to highlight, and you're seeing this on the screen up here, talks about here, but with the spirit of the living God. So here, this is what's talking, not on stone, but on heart. Here it says, but the spirit gives life. So why then is the Lord the spirit here? The Lord here is the spirit in the sense of through now this work of the new covenant. The old has now been done away. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there's freedom. That's why when Paul says here, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from image, from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the spirit. So here it's talking about being transformed into this freedom, not from the old, not from the tablets of old of stone, but now being unveiled through the new covenant. That's the context of what's being stated here. Again, I want to make it very clear as reading here, 2 Corinthians, I made a, men, a, a note of it just a minute ago. I just want to put it on the screen as I have 30 seconds left. I didn't quote it accurately, so I want to quote it accurately this time. Nowhere in Paul's epistles does he ever state unequivocally that Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Many places he'll talk about all three, and here's one place that we see. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So as I close here, we see how Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. Jesus is, in fact, distinct from the Holy Spirit and from the Father. Thank you. All right, Brandon. Let the fireworks begin, right? <laughs> Boy, right I, got my, I got my timer up here and uh, great. Hopefully, I hope everybody's doing out there. Look like we got a good crowd tonight and the 60 plus here. I've noted a few questions here and there. I have seen some questions here and there. So I'll remember to try and save your questions um, towards when we're getting towards the closings. And then that way we can definitely have them all highlighted for when we have our Q&A from the audience to the people out there. All right. So I'm going to hit my clock once you start going. And then you have 25 minutes to uh, pound and ground me. <laughs> well, hope, hopefully we'll just get greater clarity for how we both understand the text. Uh, <laughs> well, let's see. So uh, I guess my first question would be, uh, and, and again, this is not as rooted in a text, but when it comes to 
the spirit that the believer receives, which person of the Godhead personally indwells us? When I, so as a Christian, uh, when I believe when we become born again, new creation, child of God, different phraseologies in the New Testament, right? I believe the scripture talks about um, we, the Father, John 14, 23, Jesus says, the Father and I will make our abode within you. So it shows distinction of persons there. As already noted from me, Jesus teaching that when he would be eventually crucified and glorified, that the Holy Spirit would come. So I believe all three in God's supernatural way of how that born-again experience works, because even that of itself is to somewhat understandable, but then somewhat not understandable, if you know what I'm trying to say there. But um, all three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the supernatural way, come to reside within us. And thank you. B based upon the Lord's promise of uh, that I will send another comforter, uh, which is from what I understand you uh, explained to me that this is a different of the same type, which you understand as a different person. How can it be a different person if it's both of them coming into uh, the believer? Well, because it's, it's the new experience. Um, prior to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, uh, I may upset some of my Reformed friends out there, but I don't believe any of us were regenerated. I don't believe that we were um, what we classify as born again. So this is a New Testament understanding after Christ has been crucified. So even though at times, even the Old Testament, people would have experienced God in some special way, theophanies, whatever else, Jesus being there in the flesh, in their very presence, but they've never had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is a new thing. In the Old Testament, people would have the Holy Spirit come upon them, even at times, just like in the book of Acts. And even at times, the Holy Spirit would fill and move within, but they never had that permanent indwelling experience, which I believe that was something unique and different to which Jesus was speaking was yet to come. Gotcha. Thank you so much. Uh, as it relates to, and, and I know I'm jumping around a few texts, but I'm just want to make sure I get them as they come into my mind in Acts 16, uh, the King James, of course, uh, as much as I love the King James with the vows and the thieves, I'm, I'm okay. I, I love the King James as well. I'm, I'm not against it at all. I always say I'm uncurably churchy. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm pro word of God. So there amen, you go. Amen. Amen. St. John, I mean, uh, Acts 16. Uh, and it says, when they had gone through all of Phrygia and in the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost, which uh, most of my Trinitarian friends would say that's the third person of the Trinity, to preach the word in Asia. After they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. Do you believe at verse seven that this is the same spirit that is uh, referred to in verse six? I wouldn't see any reason why not to. Gotcha. Now, what's interesting here, when I was doing a little deeper study, uh, especially uh, looking at the Texas Receptus uh, and even more modern versions like the ESV, uh, it says the spirit of Jesus in the Greek text. Uh, why does it say the spirit of Jesus uh, in the Greek text and most of the modern versions say the spirit of Jesus in the verse uh, in the, you know, more modern versions? And if and I'm not sure if you have an ESV or anything nearby you, but would you still say that this is the same spirit as in verse six? 
Can you ask that one more time? I think I, I listened to some of it, but I missed something. So can you start over? Yeah, I've jumped I, I know the verse, and it's just, just the question, yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, here in verse seven, it says uh, the uh, spirit forbade them. Yeah. Uh, but in the even in the Texas Receptus, I believe it has spirit of Jesus uh, right. Uh, right. Uh, uh, in the genitive, I believe. Uh, and in the more modern versions, when you read it, it says the spirit of Jesus. Okay. Why do you think if uh, especially I'm not going to ask you a question of textual criticism, uh, but and why do you think it says the spirit of Jesus in verse six? I mean, uh, spirit of Jesus in verse seven, but in verse six, it's just the Holy Ghost. That's a good question. Um, you know, sometimes we, we, I've even heard you say it as well. I, I wasn't the author, so I don't, I can't claim divine inspiration of why it was written the way it was. Um, I normally like to use a new American standard myself. So that would probably be very similar to an ESV. So even though you were reading from the King James, I was actually following along in the new American, which says forbidden by the Holy spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they had come to, uh, Mysia, they were trying to go to Bithynia and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Um, I can't say why Luke wrote it this way, but the one thing I would say is it seems to be in harmony, still pointing to the spirit of Jesus would be still be pointing to who the Holy spirit is. Understood. And I appreciate your, your answer on that. Uh, and I guess it's in, um, Matthew one, I believe, uh, Matthew one verses, um, 18 through 20. Uh, and there's also a, an account in uh, Luke 1 and 35. Uh, e e either or uh, would, would be perfectly fine. But the two things that they tell uh, contemporaneously of the conception of Jesus, that it is the Holy Ghost. Uh, right. That is the one who causes the conception. And from my background as a Trinitarian, of course, we operate in very rigid Trinitarian categories. It is my understanding that the one who causes the conception is the father if that is the case why is it that the father is seemingly being called the title of another member of the godhead well that's an interesting question um you mentioned luke two yes, sir. or luke one luke one uh 35 and matthew yes sir e uh, yes sir i was listening so i just want to make sure oh, I got the matthew uh one 18 through 20 yeah yeah, so I'll just go to first Luke chapter one, verse. Um, I'm going to read a few verses back here. It um, starts here in uh, verse uh, 31. It says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. Will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? I just want to like rabbit trail and talk to my Roman Catholic friends here for a second, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Verse 35 The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For the reason, for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called. The Son of God. And then in Matthew 1 18, about the Holy Spirit being the one who is involved in the conception. Again, I think this points to the Trinity in my perspective because it shows once again how the Holy Spirit and the Father are both being involved. The reason why I would say that 
because verse 35 says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you, point one. The power of the Most High, meaning God the Father here, will overshadow you. So I believe both the Father and the Holy Spirit were supernaturally involved in Jesus coming into this world and taking on our likeness, taking on our flesh. Well, and I appreciate that. And I guess my caveat question to that, if we have two persons of the Godhead causing conception, would that mean that Jesus now has two fathers? No, no. Just talks about how um, God in his uniqueness, his all powerfulness uh, and the mystery, of course, of Christ coming, taking on flesh, uh, supernaturally worked that out. We can't always look at it from our point of reference in regards to human terms like relationships as um, husband and wife, because I know fully well that you would not say that uh, there was some kind of physical union going on there at the same time either. So um, though there can be some similarities, no doubt, but the birth of Jesus is a supernatural thing, which I think me and you would agree, though theologically we have differences of views. It's by far something that was unheard of, never seen in the Old Testament, um, and what makes Christianity, bar none, unique to all the religions. Thank you so much. And, and Joel, and, and I guess this is, and, and I was tickled when you told me you were affiliated with Calvary Chapel. Yeah. Uh, the uh, I forgot the gentleman's name, but his former wife, Miss Connie, I've had the chance to uh, interact with her. Very sweet woman. Uh, nice. And she uh, educated me on the vineyard movement. And I am a glutton for Pentecostal history. I love any kind of spirit filled history, but <laughs> Joel two uh, would be a passage. I would think would be right uh, up our path. Uh, Joel two 27 through 29 records the word of uh, the Lord. And he says that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Uh, now this is interesting the Lord says that he's going to pour out of his spirit in Joel two twenty seven through 29. Do you believe that's the father speaking? Joel two twenty seven through two twenty nine. Uh, yes, sir. Um, well, one of the things that sometimes can be a little difficult, um, when reading things in the old Testament is sometimes it can be known as, you know, just say, Lord, it'll say God, um, sometimes it may even have something. I don't really recall of ever directly saying it's the father speaking. You know what I mean? Um, I don't really know of any reference in the Old Testament. So this is the father speaking now, right? So when I'm looking at it here, it says, thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people will never be put to shame. It will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit. So again, I think that would show distinctions of persons right there. And your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Contextually, I would, by looking at that, I would not have any objection to that being a reference to the Father speaking of what he will do later, sending forth the Holy Spirit uh, in reference to what we've already been talking about from the New Covenant point of view. Thank you. Thank you. There was a text I had and my being slipped. And so perhaps you can find me. I'm, I'm having these senior moments after I become a dad. So ah, wait, you uh, hit 52. Oh my Lord. Help ah, this, I'm amazed. I remember head. anything nowadays. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not headed in a good tra trajectory. <laughs> if that's the case. But uh, it's the uh, text, I believe is a Corinthians uh, that talks about no man knows uh, the thoughts of a man. Save First Corinthians the, two. 
first Corinthians two. Thank you so much. Uh, in that analogy, he gives the comparison that no one knows the thoughts of a man save the spirit that is in the man. Right. And of course, he is speaking of the how can you say the hypostatic essence of who the person is. And he makes an interesting comparison uh, that no one knows uh, the thoughts of God, save the spirit that is in God. Right. When understanding who that spirit is, why, from, I guess, your viewpoint, would you think there is a distinct, well, why do you think the writer uses the uh, the example of a unipersonal human being to understanding the spirit of God, which the unseen essence of the person being similar to the unseen essence of God's spirit? Excellent question. Yeah, so I'll read it out loud here. It says in verse 10, for to us, God revealed them through the spirit. So again, uh, from my point of view, God, the father revealed them through the Holy Spirit. For the spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, who for who among men know the depths of a man, except the spirit of a man, the man, sorry, which is in him. Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. So again, showing distinction, I think, there once again, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we speak, also speak, not in the words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So, I mean, the, the context of what's going on, even the verses prior, which I would assume you probably are aware of, is talking about this mystery that was being revealed concerning um jesus coming and that he goes on to say that if the the rulers would have known um what was going to be taking place they would have not um you know killed him right so many things that god reveals to us later that we just, we're still learning these things but from these verses of themselves unless i miss in your question and please ask it again i wouldn't see how this would anyway equate the thought or the view that Jesus would be the Holy spirit. Yes, sir. Well, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I guess, and I'm not that good at building a feeble case, I guess, uh, but showing, I guess the progression of this idea that this is the same unipersonal spirit uh, in the example uh, by the apostle Paul, making a clear analogy to the spirit of man and also using the same thing. But I, that really segues into, I guess my next question, because it would be that, same spirit that of course like you i am i am I, I have calvinist friends but i am aggressively against reformed theology mm -hmm. uh, I, I do believe the holy ghost is given as a fixture of the new testament to permanently indwell believers uh but it says uh first peter 1 10 through 11 says the spirit of christ was in the prophets of old but Yet Second Peter one twenty one tells us that the Holy Ghost was that spirit that moved upon them. Would you say, Mr. Powers, that uh, these were two persons of the Godhead working in them? So First Peter one verse ten through eleven, and what was the other reference? Second uh, Peter one, uh, All right. verse twenty one. Okay, all right. So I'll I'll deal with the first one here, and then respond to the second one. So I read out loud as to this salvation, verse ten of First Peter ten, verse one. Sorry. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, you know, one of the things that I mentioned earlier is that even at times in the Old Testament, prophets 
would have had the spirit move upon them, empower them, fill them, move within them. And so uh, I would not in any way see this being any confliction with what's already been shared by me. Uh, again, though, it does talk about the spirit of Christ. What's interesting, too, in the first couple of verses, um, it talks about according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the spirit, to obey Jesus Christ. So again, it shows a threefold, once again, of the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus being distinct, I believe. And in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father by Lord Jesus Christ. So what I see Peter here is just talking about distinction, something that would have been familiar with Peter, talking about the Spirit of Christ being synonymous with, talking about the Holy Spirit. And you mentioned, um, just to quickly get to it, Second Peter chapter 1, and then let you follow up here. Verse Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 21, I think you said, For no prophecy was ever made by, by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit uh, spoke from God. And this, uh, you know, and this, I think we would have agreement, though, again, differences. But yes, uh, prophets, apostles, they would have been moved by the Holy Spirit times to do things. But once again, I, I would just kindly say to you, even like just the preceding verses, once again, in context, Verse 17, it says, when he received, I mean, Jesus' honor and glory from God the Father. So again, showing distinctions. Uh, utterance was made to him uh, by this majestic glory. This is my beloved son. So when I'm looking at these verses, and I'm just trying to let the verses speak for themselves, even not even trying to prove the Trinity, just, just looking at the verses themselves, I would be, you know, Without without trying to make it say something it doesn't say, which is the word eisegesis, I know you would know, uh, I would see clearly that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would be distinct from one another, not even trying to prove the Trinity that there are three one, three and one God, but just distinction of persons I would see here clearly. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my, my next question, of course, I guess definitely getting toward the uh, more of the orthopraxy of uh, the reception of the Spirit. But in uh, St. John 14, 16, uh, of course, we're told that the Holy Ghost is going to abide into the hearts of believers. Uh, but yet, uh, and this is one of my most favorite promises of the Lord. We're given in Matthew 28 and 20 uh, that the Lord said that I would be with you. I would abide with you even to the ends of the world. Seeing if the Holy Ghost is a distinct person from the Son, can we truthfully say that Christ personally dwells in us not through a proxy person but can we say that he personally dwells with us oh i i would say yes yes um that's what i was mentioning earlier just you know you, you brought up john 14 which is don't worry i'll be bringing it up later too <laughs> seems to be our common text here um but just briefly looking at it here yeah you know like it says yeah that the holy spirit would be with them and then will be in them and then um you know, Matthew 28, 20, great text, I think also an affirmative uh, for those of us who are, and I say this respectfully, who are sincere, genuine Christians and not with a different Jesus or different gospel. The promise that Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20 is that I, I'm with you forever. And yeah. I think that is an outstanding statement. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an assurance statement that the Lord is with us always, even in the end of the age. And I think especially in the world that we live today, just a, a side note, like that is what the world needs to know, that Jesus loves you, died for you, rose again, and that's what the hope of the world needs. And so um, how that ties into what you were saying there, though, again, I think I say it respectively, 
that with um, those verses, I again don't see the connection of how that could be equating Jesus as being the Holy Spirit. Uh, understood, understood. And I think I have about five minutes left, if I'm correct. Yeah, you got, well, four. Thirty-five. <laughs> right. Hey, none more. There you go. <laughs> yes, sir. The counting in me loves that. Uh, uh, well, I guess is when it comes to the uh, concept of him being our comforter or the Paracletos, yes, according to yes. Saint John fourteen twenty-six, uh, the Holy Ghost is that promised comforter who will comfort us in all things. But in First uh, John two and one, Jesus is our Paracletos from a. Uh, Understanding that the scripture says there's one mediator between God, man, the man, Christ Jesus. How many comforters uh, personally do does the Christian enjoy? You know, it's interesting. That's a great text. So when you're looking at, as you just highlighted here, First uh, John 2, 1, talks about an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. When you're looking at John 14, as what we've been looking at a lot, and will be more. Um, that word, another helper, yeah, is the Greek word parakletos. What's interesting, this is what makes this word Allah so unique, and I say this just as a friend right now, really dig into what that word means. I've spent a lot of time looking at that word over the years, that word another in Greek is the word alos, and I'll share more with this my cross-examination, so, but I just want to make a highlight. So this is what makes it so interesting. When Jesus says another will be coming, well, Jesus said he's one with the Father, right? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, I know we have differences of views on that, but when I'm looking at John 1, 18 or many other places, Jesus says, I came, I came to reveal the Father. I was sent from the Father. I speak the words of the Father. I and my Father are one. Um, then we see him now entering the scene of the Holy Spirit. Well, who is this Holy Spirit? What, what's going on? And the, the, one, the first verse that Jesus teaches about the Holy Spirit says, another, another helper. So what it tells me is that this would point to what I would classify as the triunity of God, where each of them are all by nature of the same essence, but distinct as persons. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, and according to uh, Mark uh, 13, 11, the Holy Ghost will give us the words to say in times of persecution, but we are told that Jesus, he will give us the words to say in times of persecution, according to Luke 21, 15. Are both persons of the Godhead giving us what to say? Yeah. I mean, I would I would have no objection to that. I, I, would, I would never actually even think that it would only be just one, not the other, um, because even the Father at times will reveal things to us as well in Scripture too. So... What we would see, though, is that Jesus even says, you know, um, don't worry about what you're going to say. But when the time comes, the Holy Spirit, he'll lead and guide you, have give you the words to say. So, and at times, Jesus will do it. So this, again, to me, would point to distinction of persons, in my opinion. Because if, if we're trying to say it's only one person, but has different modes, we haven't really got down that line just yet, but just throwing it out there then that becomes really, you really then have to really look at Scripture from a different pair of lenses to try it almost like in a way, and I'm going to use a word that may not sound nice, but try to force views in there, where allowing just the verses themselves to speak for themselves, I believe, again, looking at what you just said, it would show how both the Father, well, actually the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit will at times move in our lives, but they would always be in harmony with one another. Gotcha. And I'm not sure how much time I have left. I don't want to. You have 45 seconds, so have liberty with it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, um, and, and I get one of the chief things I understand about Trinitarianism is that you're able to distinguish or honor the persons of the Godhead based upon the distinction of operations. Uh, and this is why I ask us so many operational related questions. Uh, Romans 8.26 tells us the spirit is our intercessor, but Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus is our intercessor. How many mediator intercessors, uh, when the Bible tells us there's one mediator uh, between man, does the believer enjoy? Right, right, right. So I get what you're saying. Yeah, I'll just hit cancel there so the alarm doesn't go off. Um, so as you were mentioning a minute ago, and like, you know, mediators, intercessors, right? Like, the Bible does say there's one mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, right? Each verse, of course, would have context. So in that context, it's talking about the ransom. The Father, I don't believe, is the one that came and took on flesh, though I know you may have certain views on that. Uh, Jesus is the Son who shed his blood, died for us. Holy Spirit didn't. So in different contexts, Romans 8.26, the mediator uh, or the intercessor is the Holy Spirit, where in the context there, it's talking about that he even groans for us, things that we may not even understand when we're praying, right? So it shows how the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way, now that we are children of God, no longer of bondage and fear, but now call out God, the Father, Abba. Um, we're now spiritually adopted as children, freedom. And now through the Holy Spirit, he can at times work in our lives. And I mean, I would be safe to say that if you're praying at times, you'll pray to the Father, you'll pray to the son, you would pray to the Holy Spirit. Um, the difference would be, I think maybe you would understand modes, but I would just say in my personal perspective, I have no problem. Even when I pray, it may sound interesting to you. When I pray intentionally, I pray at times to the father. I pray to the son and I pray to the Holy Spirit because I believe that's a good biblical model that we could see throughout the scriptures. Thank you so much. And, uh, I, I, that's how we were taught to pray growing up. Thank you. Right on, right on. Okay. Well, that went fast. Right on, right on. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good stuff. Good stuff. It's going to catch up on what's going on over here. Comments. I may have missed some. All right. Well, let's get me going here. Okay. So, um, I'd like to go back to John 14 myself. Sure. Now in John 14, I'm going to walk it through. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I have it on my screen, so it's easier for me to see because I'm uh, nearsighted, so I have to have sometimes things a little bit bigger. Um, here it says, um, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I'm not going to go down a rabbit trail here, but in verses 1 through 6, it seems to be a distinction of himself and the Father. In verse 2, it says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go prepare a place for you. So Jesus is going somewhere, right? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is it possible when you're reading verses 18, when you are attempting in your perspective, you know, from where you're coming from, 
to equate Jesus being this Holy Spirit to come? Is it possible when it says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, that this also has something to do with what he was teaching previously in the opening of John 14, where he's talking about going to be with the Father and that he would come again and bring them to where he would be? Well, and that's a very good question. Uh, I think uh, when he talks about in my father's house, there are many matches. I believe the Greek word is Monet there, if I'm not thinking of the le lexical uh, nominative sense. Uh, I believe that the Lord is referring to uh, the many mansions in that sense uh, as being the, his body, uh, that he will return into it. And there are some commentators who would see it that way. But from, from my viewpoint, I think the linchpin to understanding the Lord's last discourse, uh, and I hope my ADD doesn't get me running everywhere, St. <laughs> um, John 16, uh, 25 to 26, that he has spoken these things to them in parables. Uh, so in this, I believe in him speaking of this, and of course, ever from a oneness viewpoint, and I probably have more of an aggressive view of the hypostatic union than some oneness believers do. But I believe that when Jesus is speaking of the father, this is definitely a relational experience from his humanity. So from my viewpoint, this would totally make sense. Uh, him talking about going away physically. Uh, but I believe the mansions that he's speaking of are actually the believers. Well, in John 16, to kind of piggyback off of that, I'll, I'll go back to John 14 in a moment. In John 16, verse 5, Jesus picks it up once again, saying, Now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asked me, where I, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So what is Jesus teaching here about him going away, that it's a necessity, that if he doesn't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. How does that work in your your paradigm? Well, uh, and of course, still seeing it uh, in a context of parabolic sayings. Uh, and again, I stated earlier from my viewpoint, the Holy Spirit is simply the spirit of Christ living within us. And uh, as you've noted, verse 16, he sent another comforter. He's coming and he's saying that it's to your advantage that I go away physically uh, that I believe. Uh, the reason is because as long as he is there with us physically, he cannot, he will not rather give out his spirit to dwell in all believers. So Jesus is talking about the transition of, uh, how can you say administrations or uh, manifestations? They are currently enjoying him being manifested to them in the flesh, in their midst. And it is in God's sovereign plan that it is going to be him dwelling in believers, uh, which is his ultimate goal. So now it will be Christ everywhere in the people that he has called. So in that instance, I see Jesus saying that I must go away because it is not until I go away that I'm going to send my spirit to dwell in you. Thus, personally, why I like to say Holy Ghost, because it has the connotation of someone that has died. So in John 14, 16, just give me a moment. I'm going to read a few verses. Sure. Jesus is the one speaking in John 14, 16, correct? Yes, sir. I will pray okay. the Father. Okay. So I will ask the Father. So he's talking and he's he's talking to the Father, correct? Yes, sir. He's praying to the Father. Okay. So he's talking to the Father. He will I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Verse 26 states, Jesus again speaking, but the helper 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring remembrance to all that I've said to you. In John 15, 26, just want to read this as well. And when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And again, once again, in John 16, verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. Let me ask you a question here. Who is Jesus teaching that is coming? Is he teaching he is the one coming in all these verses, or is it actually stating that the one who is coming is actually, in fact, the Holy Spirit who is coming? I would say both. Uh, from my viewpoint, I would say both, because I would say the Holy Spirit is the non-comport reality of the uh, glorified Christ. Uh, and, of course, my memory sleeping again, but I know within the same context, he says that I will come unto you. Uh, that that would have to be, from my viewpoint, taken into account. How does he come to be with us and how does he personally abide with us? So uh, from my viewpoint, the one that is coming is the one that they already know that dwells with them, that will be dwelling in them, which is Christ. Okay. Who is the one that's sending? Who's the one sending? Well, in one context, we have the Lord saying that he's going to send it from the Father. And the same, uh, some other scriptures, the Father sending uh, the Spirit. Uh, I believe you mentioned verse 16 when he says, I will pray the Father, which I really love that language because it makes it hard for some of my Unitarian friends when you get into these hypostatic distinctions. Uh, it's, it's important to remember in clause one of uh, verse 16, uh, when it says that I will pray according to the book of Hebrews that he prayed in the days of his flesh. Uh, my theology, and there are some Trinitarians who agree with me, prayer is a, an exact expression of his humanity. Uh, to quote Thomas Morris, the two minds view uh, that it prayer is an expression of his true humanity. So him praying uh, in the days of his flesh for the father to send another comforter would essentially just be the reality of uh, the hypostasized Christ, uh, divine and human nature uh, and dwelling in believers, if I'm not being so everywhere. Right, right. So still piggybacking off of my question here. So when I'm reading these verses, and I mean no disrespect to anything to you so far, it's sure. been really good. When I'm reading these verses, even like in John 16, verse 13 and following, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he, not I, he will guide you into all truth. For he, not I, will speak on, will not speak on his own initiative. Whatever he hears, not I, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He, verse 14, will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you all things that the father has are mine and therefore i said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you how do you from the oneness perspective understand when jesus is speaking in this language that this spirit who's going to come, he never says I in any of these places at all. 
he speaks of the Holy Spirit as being distinct with multiple distinct pronouns of himself and the Father in these few verses. So how would you argue that Jesus is, in fact, would still be the Holy Spirit according to these verses? And that's a very good question. Well, I, I would say that, I, well, I wouldn't say argue. It uh, gives a little bit more of a tone of being adversarial. Uh, but I would say, one, based upon the clear uh, identification of the New Testament writers of Christ being the Spirit, to quote the church historian Adolf von Harnick, uh, the term Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost was used interchangeably uh, with Jesus Christ in the early church. Uh, and again, from my viewpoint of the incarnation, uh, as a oneness believer, uh, and I know there are some variations among us, I wholeheartedly expect there to be pronoun differences uh, when he from a man is speaking of himself uh, in his divinity, or it would be just a flesh suit kind of thing. Now, some would say that if he's referring to someone in the third person, that this must by necessity mean that he's talking about someone else. Well, there is a paper, uh, which I had on top of my head, that talks about why does Christ speak in the third person? An example will be of this is when he says, when you shall see the son of man coming, well, we know that he's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself or better yet. Then uh, with Matthew 24, then you shall see the sign of the son of man. Well, does this mean that this is another divine person coming? I believe these are just simply the trends of the Lord and especially with the Lord's own. Uh, how can you say admittance because of the disciples weakness of understanding uh, mm -hmm. that he is speaking to them in parabolic terms. So uh, in St. John, and I think it was one commentator I read that said these uh, chapters three through 16 are probably some of the most mystical uh, parabolic chapters in the whole new Testament, which I would agree but I would still see these as just continuing revelations of the Lord speaking of himself. Hmm. Well, let me give a quick comment on that. Like when sure. he says, when you see the son of man, I don't think he's speaking to someone else because he's been claiming multiple times prior to that to be the son of man. So when he's making that statement, when you see the son of man, when you see me coming, mm -hmm. then you're going to know these things are taking place. He's not speaking distinctly of someone else. It's firsthand. But when we're looking at John 16 here again, let me just point this out here. Let me just point this out here in regards to just a few verses here. I, I know it's going to be, it's going to sound me being tedious. Just humor no, me for a second. Verse seven, I, Jesus, but I, Jesus, tell the truth. It is your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. For if I, do, Jesus, do not go away, the helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I, Jesus, go, I, Jesus, will send him the Holy Spirit to you. And he, and we just keep on seeing the he's here, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, judgment and righteousness, because they do not believe in me. So again, these personal pronouns showing distinctions mean something. These aren't mystic in my opinion. He says here, because I go to the Father, you no longer see me. So when we see these things that are here written down, I believe, and I would hope you can with too, that a child could read this chapter and understand with just however I want to put it without any disrespect, reading skills, see what is being stated here. So if I was to say to you from these verses, let me just maybe press a point here. Sure. Verses sure. 13 through 15. Let me read it one more time, please. Jesus says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, 
he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. Let me stop there. What is, how does Jesus, who is supposed to be the Holy Spirit, how does he not speak of his own initiative? How does he only speak what is disclosed to him? How does he, if he's the Holy Spirit, glorify himself here? How does he take of himself and disclose it to them? How does he take of himself and the Father and disclose his disciples if Jesus is, in fact, supposed to be the Holy Spirit? Does that make sense? Well, I, I think I'm understanding uh, the question you're asking, and I think it still lies in the fact that Jesus clearly demystifies his statement by making it clear that I will come unto you. Uh, and I think when reading which, these, which verse is that? Sorry, let me see. Let me, see. let me pull it up. Don't have it off the top of my head here. Sorry, I just want to make sure I knew what you were saying. My apology. You're fine. You're fine. Google uh, St. John 14 and uh, no, let me see. No, it's not the verse. Oh, St. John 14, 18, excuse me. The orphans one. Yes, sir. I will not leave you as orphans or phanos. Uh, right. Betty, Betty says, uh, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come unto you. I think uh, an important question to ask there and Looks like my computer is doing its freeze thing again. So, but I'm going to adjust that. No the worries. Reason, oh yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I can still hear you. So that's good. It's okay. Oh, thank, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Uh, when he promises to come to you, uh, I think that is uh, realized in the coming that he promised to come in the work of the spirit. Uh, I don't think it would be just for the time after his resurrection uh, for those little time period, because he promised that he would be with them always, even to the ends of the world. So I think he gives the key of who this Holy Spirit is going to be by making it clear that he will come unto them. How does he not speak of his own initiative if he's actually supposed to be the Holy Spirit? How does he speak to his other modes? Well, I wouldn't say he would speak to um, his other modes. And, and I'm not sure if... Um, I'm not a, uh, what do they call a um, sequential modalist? Um, I would be more of a simultaneous modalist, if that makes sense. Uh, okay, that okay. The one God is, uh, he's simultaneous. All three at one time, okay. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, at least from an economic soteriological standpoint, uh, okay, so okay. to speak. So I wouldn't see him speaking, uh, how can you say, to his different mode? The only communication that I would see active in the nature of God would be, uh, I, I'll hold an early uh, uh, communicado idiomatum view or nature perichoresis. Uh, so that would be only between this humanity and the divinity, so to speak. Uh, but again, I believe these statements are parabolic in the context, uh, because I guess my question would be, if one all-knowing person is speaking to another all-knowing, what could he tell him that he doesn't already know? Uh, for me, I, I would have challenges uh, reconciling at least what I believe to be the omniscience of God or the all knowingness. You know, like what it because when you when you have the concept of communication, it's a information exchange. What information could one person of the Godhead rightfully exchange to the other? Mm -hmm. Well, if you may, let me interject here a second. So when Jesus came, we read in Philippians two, 
He humbled himself, took on humanity, humbled himself to the Father, said, you know, I, I come under the authority of the Father. We see that in numerous places throughout the Gospel mm -hmm. of John. So it showed humility. He at times claimed equality with the Father, but also showed that he was under the Father at the same time in regards to position. In verse 13, I want to read it one more time in John 16. Jesus says, when he, the Spirit truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, but he will not speak of his own initiative. If Jesus is supposed to be the Holy Spirit, according to what you're sharing as well, how does he as the Holy Spirit not speak of his own initiative? Well, I believe he, again, when he's saying that he's not speaking of his own initiative, he's letting them know that when this spirit comes, which will essentially be himself revealed, he's going to speak the exact same thing that they've already heard for them from them, rather, based upon his previous tension, excuse me, based upon his previous teaching. So he's letting them know that when the spirit is coming, he's not going to say something different than what they've already heard. Now, the way you just worded that, you almost make it sound like as if they're two different people, just so you know. Oh, well, you know, and I guess. <laughs> just let you know. Well, you know, and, and I will, uh, as a oneness believer, readily admit, I think when it comes to articulating, uh, I guess, the experience of what I would call the most unique case study in history, I think uh, from a oneness or classical Trinitarian standpoint, I think we're all at uh an embarrassing uh, weakness of our uh, tools to express what, what we uh, believe. Let me go back to, you know, I, I think I've made my case and I won't keep on pressing. I mean, we have different uh, views of how we're looking at John 16. I look at it from just very, to me, very parent pronouns that seem to just be to me um, clear. And you're coming from a different perspective, how you look at it. So I'll respect that. Um, back in John 14, Let's focus on the verse that you'd like to focus on, verse 18. I'll use your alter, you know, your your weapon here, your your offensive motive here, you know, your your verse to share. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now it's interesting if you keep reading, after a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the, my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, let me ask you a question. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And we see later, fuller information being revealed in John 16, verses 5 uh, through typically 12, that it's talking about him going away and coming back. How do you get from these verses here directly that he's actually claiming to be the Holy Spirit when in fact it would seem the context would be stating I'm going away you won't see me for a bit but you will because I live which I think is pointing to his resurrection what's your thoughts and that's an interesting question um, again uh, and let me just pull back to the verse you mentioned St. John 14 and verse 18 I will not leave you comfortless or or oponos. And again, we're orphans there. To me, that jumps out parental language. Uh, I will come unto you. I would ask when he says that I will come unto you. I guess my question would be, are we saying that this and I'm not trying to know it's just rhetorical. I know it's your time to question. Right. No, I get it. I get it. This coming to you. 
if this is his second coming, then this is well outside of their lifetime. They would have died. Uh, of course, uh, the apostles by then. The only way that I can see this as a practical application tying into the context that you already know him, he will dwell with you, and I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. At least from how I understand, I see no other way to consistently uh, uh, synchronize the Lord's promise to his disciples. Okay. Let me, because I got about three and a half minutes now, so I want to kind of hone in on a few things here. Camera, I'm not sure what happened. That's all good. It's all good. Sometimes I look better when the camera's not on, so it's okay. Uh, actually, no, I always look better when the camera's not on. Let me clarify that. There we go. Let me ask you a question here. Now, I know that you see this verse as Jesus is saying, I will not leave you, I will come to you. And you believe that points to him essentially believing that he would be the Holy Spirit. But let me ask you a direct question. If I was to ask you to, from Jesus' point of view, where did Jesus say, I, I'm the Son of God? Can you come up with a verse? Uh, not top of my head. I mean, it's such a uh, claims to be the, claims to be the yeah, son of God somewhere. Yeah, uh, like when he's talking to uh in his in his uh his passion when he's coming before um uh King uh having a moment uh he says uh these are you the son or the Messiah he professes there and various other places uh he he makes it very clear throughout the gospel narrative. Okay, fair son. enough. Okay, what about when? claiming to be the Messiah or the Christ. What, did Jesus ever claim that anywhere? I believe so. Um, of course, I can't think of the verse off the top of my head, uh, but he did American not. The woman with John 4, 25 and 26. Oh, yeah. Right? Or, yeah. yeah, I am he. Yeah. We... Okay. Uh, how about claiming to be the son of man? Did Jesus ever claim that and teach that? Uh, yeah. Uh, when uh, the instance, uh, he uses this prophetic term that's used in the Old Testament many times, uh, which I think, in my view, identifies him more with humanity. Uh, when he uh, tells kings that you shall see the Son of Man coming in the cows of our glory, so to speak. Okay. Right, right. What about him claiming to be the I Am? I know we would have a disagreement in our understanding, but you would agree that he did claim to be the I Am. Where did Jesus claim to be the I Am? I believe in, uh, I'm not getting mixed up St. John 8 when he talks about I am. Uh, when you make statements, unless you believe I am, you'll die in your sins. Uh, so she says that. Is there a place where Jesus also claimed to be the Lord, the Lord of the Sabbath? Yes, he uh, made that claim, uh, tying himself to that Lord. Great. So here's where I'm going with those reasons. I'm getting down to my last minute here in my questions. If we can see places where Jesus claimed to be the I am, claimed to be the Son of God, claimed to be the Son of Man, claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, can you give me a reference where it's clear and undeniable that he claimed to be the Holy Spirit? Well, I believe uh, contextually, uh, of course, you can make things uh, by explicit statements or inference. I probably would say uh, to say that, oh, I'm going to be the Holy Spirit outside of understanding the context. I don't think I could say that right offhand, probably no more than you could say uh, where he says that I'm God, the son. Uh, so I bet we both would affirm those. True, but I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't claim to, I don't use that phraseology, but I know what you're trying to say. Yeah. So, and, and I guess we both would say we both would affirm things based upon our inference uh, and based upon the new Testament reference of him being called the spirit of Jesus, yeah. uh, making it quite clear through the apostles teaching that the spirit was Jesus. Sure. 
as my time is wrapping up, my final thought of what I was asking, thank you very much, is that if we can see numerous places where Jesus claims certain things clearly of himself, of being the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, Lord, and all that, and if this teaching that, as you have, that he would be, in fact, claiming to be the Holy Spirit, I find it very odd that we don't see that anywhere taught by Jesus unequivocally, uh, nor would I even see that indication that him claiming uh, that being taught by the apostles. So that was my reasoning for my question. I hope that made sense to you. I appreciate that. It sure did. I appreciate you asking. All right. I think my time just now ran up, so I just hit cancel on that. So I think our 25 minutes each has flown by. All right. Whenever you start, we'll hit here. the clock. Yes, sir. And i um, pulling my notes back up here. One moment. Well, I, since um, I, everything shut down, I will. I think I feel pretty strong enough to give the statement essentially from my viewpoint tonight. And again, I want to thank Mr. Kelly for uh, lending his time uh, and, of course, engaging me intellectually. I don't take that lightly that you would do that so that we can leave uh, together having a better understanding where we both stand. As a one that's Pentecostal, I believe emphatically that of course this one God from all of creation who is by definition a spirit has revealed himself in various ways through various means in the old testament this one God who is the true spirit of all flesh has come and revealed himself by incarnating himself dynamically uh, in a true humanity uh, everything that is true of a man I believe God took upon himself in the incarnation and it is in the incarnation, this humiliation that we see uh, that led to his crucifixion and his glorification, that we are not able to be the recipients of his spirit, that he has sent to dwell in the hearts of all men who would accept and believe him. I believe that he has sent his spirit to dwell within our hearts, which essentially is Christ in me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. I believe this is the same spirit that worked through the book of Acts after the Lord's bodily resurrection that guided his early church into all things that are profitable. I believe this same spirit is the comforter that is described in St. John 14 as the spirit that will lead men into all uh, all things that are true. I thank God that through the Holy Ghost, we're able to know him and to realize his reality in a dynamic way that allows us to be the examples of him and hold up his name in the world. I believe that it is by one spirit who is the Lord that we're all baptized into the body, both bond or free Jew or Greek. We have all been made to be partakers of that same spirit. And I believe if we do not have the spirit of Christ, that we are none of his. So with that being said, I will uh, shorten my uh, closing tonight, but I want to thank the platform and those who contributed. It has truly been a great privilege. Thank you so much. Brandon, thank you as well. This has been great. You know what? I would love to have you back up for another talk. I think it'd be good. If we could have many talks, it'd be great. All right. Um, I'm going to give my final thoughts here as well, and then we'll bring you back up in just a moment. Thank you, Brandon, and for all who are here. Tonight's discussion slash debate was very respectful, and intentionally so. I wanted to be able to demonstrate how we as Christians 
can have cordial and respectful debates with people that we would believe are opposing, maybe even have a different Jesus or a different gospel, right? Tonight, the topic was, is Jesus the Holy Spirit? Now, one of the things that we've went through is John 14, John 15, and John 16. In each of those chapters, not once does Jesus ever unequivocally or anything hint to him being the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. In John 14, John 15, and John 16, the three chapters of the whole Bible that teach more about who the Holy Spirit is than anywhere else coming from Jesus. And you would think that if Jesus is supposed to be the Holy Spirit, it would be loud and clear. We see Jesus claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah, John 4, 25 and 26. We see Jesus claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, Matthew 12, 8. We see him claiming to be the Son of Man in John chapter 3. We see him claiming to be the Son of God in John chapter 3. We see him claiming to be I am in John chapter 8. We see repetitively many claims to Jesus, but never do we ever see him once teaching, indicating that he is in fact the Holy Spirit. Now when we see the teachings, he says that this another will come. As mentioned in my opening and different times throughout this discussion, that word another is the Greek word alos, which means the meaning of another of the same kind, same nature, but one who is distinct from the one who is speaking or already there. What does that mean? Well, as pointed out in discussion, Jesus is called our paraclete, our advocate in 1 John 2, verse 2. So how can the Holy Spirit be both that as well? Because this points to the oneness of God being triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you read through the Gospel of John, verses chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, John 15, 26, John 16, verse 7 through 15, those three chapters and all of those references where Jesus is making mention of the Holy Spirit, 29 times distinctly, Jesus makes reference to the Holy Spirit distinct from himself and the Father. 18 times Jesus speaks of himself distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. And seven times Jesus speaks of the Father distinct of himself, meaning Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. What does that prove? It proves, my friends, that when we're basing our faith on the Word of God, not churches, not traditions, not creeds, not commentaries, but the Word of God. What did Jesus teach? Did Jesus, in fact, teach he's the Holy Spirit? No. Do we even see the apostles teaching this? No. There is no direct verse ever in context at all from the New Testament writers that Jesus is, in fact, the Holy Spirit. Quite the opposite, in fact, when you read Scripture. So as I close, close with my final few seconds here, what do we learn about the Holy Spirit? He was the promised one 
who would come after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And he promised that when he would come, the Holy Spirit would be given. Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples in John 20, 22. He didn't give himself directly. He gave the promise of who the Holy Spirit was that we read in Scripture. I encourage you, I implore you, I beg all of you, Trinitarians and not, dig into the Word of God. Set aside for a time the glasses that we all read from at times and be Bereans. Thank you so much for being here. I pray that you benefited from this debate. Thank you. Brandon, you're muted. There we go. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, hey, you're looking better there. You're moving a little sharper now. All right. No lag. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> right on, right on. Yes, indeed. All right, friends. Let me just po let me scroll back up here and see how far back we go here. And okay, there we go. All right. So I got quite a few questions, some of them from the same people, it looks like, but we will go through it at times. So what I'll say here, let me just read through, and I'll kind of pick some of these at random and kind of go back at times. So the way I think it's good when we're looking at questions um, is whoever the question is to, you go first, I go first, have a minute or two to give a response, mm -hmm. and then the other person can give a response, and just kind of just maybe leave it at that. Sometimes I know we've had some where whoever gets the question first and the other person responds, and then the other person gets to respond again. And it kind of, especially if the person keeps the same questions over and over and over, it kind of gives a little bit of weight to whoever that person may or may not be. So I think whoever, we just kind of go back and forth, having it fair and even, if that makes sense to you. Sure, sure. All right, good enough, fair enough. All right, let's give that another one there. All right, so I'm going to back up over here. Let's go with, um, this guy has given me a lot of questions here. Great questions of this guy here, so I can't pick them all. Um, well, they're all, they're mostly to you, so that's, I guess that's, <laughs> so here we go. That's kind of expected though, right? Oh, all right let's, yeah, go with, yeah. let's go with this one first. All right, the first question we'll start off with, it goes to you. To the elder, how come in Genesis 19.24, we have a person calling himself Yahweh and he calls fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of heaven. The from preposition has the direct object marker showing two persons. All right. Uh, we'll let you start off with that one there. Well, thank you so much. And uh, biblical truth opposing error. That is a very good question. Uh, Genesis nineteen twenty four, I think is a good example of sometimes maybe, in our English translations may not have the full impact of understanding Hebrew idioms. Uh, and I'm currently using the NET Bible, which is a translation of uh, many of the scholars who are natives of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, and what's interesting here is that at verse 23, the sun had just risen over the land as Lot reached Zoar. Then the Lord rained down sulfur and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. It was sent down from the sky by the Lord. Uh, from this instance, even though I know Yahweh appears twice in the text, I just see one Yahweh. If we are taking from this text that how can you say there is uh, one Yahweh sending fire to another Yahweh? I have issues as it relates to God's omnipresence, how that works, if that's the case. But 
essentially, I just think the ticks is doubling down from where the fire comes from. I wouldn't see this as an example of uh, polypersonalism from my viewpoint. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, it's interesting. Now, I like to read from more literal translations, whether it be King James, New King James, New American Standard, um, even in the Old Testament, what's called a Jewish Publication Society or other Jewish translations as well. And I have not seen any Jewish translation that has not worded it this way, where it states, uh, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. It's interesting to note that there are clearly two who are being described in this event. Verse 25 says, and he, notice the word he, overthrew those cities and all the valley and the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. So here we see the author, which we, we both would agree would be Moses, says here, the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities. What's interesting is I always like to say the best commentary is scripture. I know it kind of sounds funny, but it's true. In the book of Amos chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, it says the following. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. So we see the one speaking is Yahweh the Lord. Verse 11 states, And I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. And what's also interesting, too, is in Jeremiah 50, verse 40, the same thing is repeated from the book of Amos, chapter 4, showing that it goes from first person to second person in the same context, showing distinction of person, showing two. So I would see that being the case. All right. Let's go to another question. I'm going to pop that up just at random here. Question from Joy. By the way, the last person was biblical truth and opposing error. Thank you for your question. Uh, Joy says, if I call out to Jesus and confess my sins and feel convicted to be water baptized, but do so, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will I be good? I still call upon the name of the Lord and identify JC. I'm going to guess that may be first mostly pointed to you, I would assume. Yeah, it seemed like we have a little bit of a soteriological conversation related to baptism. And interestingly enough, uh, Brother Kelly, I have a debate tomorrow at noon on water baptism in Jesus' name. Hmm. Of course, uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that's interesting. The question came. Uh, of course, I, I respect any person's sincere step uh, to do and what the Lord has commanded. But of course, I uh, could not in good conscience uh, make you feel assured uh, baptizing in the titles. I believe the only way to baptize according to the Bible is in the name of the Lord Jesus, respectfully. Right on. Maybe we'll have to have that topic down the road for ourselves as well. That could be a fun one. Um Yes, so I would obviously disagree with Brandon, and rightly so, because otherwise we wouldn't be even having this debate. Um, scripture is clear, and this is, you know, we didn't talk about this evening, so I won't go into too much since it wasn't a talked about uh, text, but 
yeah, Matthew 28 does talk about, you know, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we do see also when we look at the book of Acts, so that says that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. I guess the distinction would be from what I would be looking at is that when they, when Jesus was being spoken of, they knew that who he came from. He was sent from the Father, came with the authority of the Father, and talked about who the Holy Spirit was. So to understand that Jesus, when they were baptized, it not just the, the words was not just special words. It represented the triunity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even early church fathers, now this is a, an outside source. I don't believe church fathers have weight when it comes to scripture, so I'll make that clear. But even early on, there were those who were baptizing early on in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I would say this, even outside of this question, which would be interesting for Brandon maybe another day too, I believe a person, if they truly call upon Jesus, Romans 10, and believe in their heart, confess with their lips, Jesus is Lord, they shall be saved, even if they haven't been water baptized. Now, do I believe water baptism is a commandment and instruction from the Lord? Absolutely. But I believe it, I believe it strongly that the water baptism is not the gospel for salvation. So I would say to you, Joy, if you're doing that, I would say that if you truly believe in your heart, Christ is the Son of God, died upon the cross and rose again, you truly call upon him as atonement for your sins, then you are in good company from my perspective. All right, next one here, truth defenders. Um, and I'm just picking here, so it's just, you know, maybe, maybe you know what I could do too is if, if the question is directed to you, but maybe I can answer it first sometimes, that way you get the last word. How's that too, right? That way it makes it all so fair. So I'll go first on this one. Uh, the question is, if Father, Son, Holy Spirit are just modes of God, who really is behind the mask? Can we ever know God truly? So I'll go first. I'll let you have the last word on this one. How's that? So if the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are just modes, and from what I'm understanding him trying to say is because from the oneness perspective, it's not three distinct persons. It's three different manifestations, three different modes with you. You believe they're all simultaneously at the same time where there are others who have believe it happened in different time frames. And so um, I would say this, that if this be true, um, and he uses the word mask, and that's also can actually be biblically, um, or sorry, historically understood early on in the first few centuries, how people understood things. Um, I would say it would be quite confusing to me. Here's why I would say this. Because if it's just modes or different manifestations, but yet then it's only truly in essence just one personal, I don't even want to use the word being because I have a different definition of being than you. So uh, just one distinct person. If it's only just one, but three different modes for myself looking old and New Testament, but predominantly New Testament lenses, it makes the Bible very confusing. And this is not directed towards Brandon, of course, but in some of my understandings and talking to other people in the past, it almost sounds as if like God is schizophrenic because at times he's praying to himself, talking to himself, sending himself, different things like here. And it just gets very confusing where as I was walking slowly through John, and I use the word slowly because that's what I wanted to do, go through it slowly and allow the text of John 14, 15, and 16 for our discussion for the readers and listeners um, just to see what Jesus actually taught of distinction, then it makes sense to me. 
I can understand if people reject the pre-existence of Jesus. I can understand if they reject his deity. I can understand many things where they maybe you know reject uh, his equality with the Father. But it baffles me when people say that Jesus and the Father and even the Holy Spirit are not distinct persons among each other. Unitarians would even agree with that. Uh, distinctions, Jehovah Witnesses, and many other groups. It's the oneness camp that seems to somehow bring these modes together. And in my opinion, when I look at Scripture that way, I'm very confused. But that's my perspective. Go ahead, Brendan. Well, I appreciate that. And I think this is very uh, interesting, especially when we look at the etymology of the word person. I believe how person is understood, even in our modern context, we haven't even really quite got a, a, a finger on that. This person is a ambiguous uh, evolution of, a, of thought, if you will. Uh, but I will, regarding uh, the question, if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just modes of God, who is really behind the mask? Well, let me explain. Uh, one thing a lot of people don't know about most modalists, uh, which I prefer oneness because most people think sequential when you say modalist. Uh, definitionally, all of us would technically fit into the category of economic Trinitarians in the instance that we believe that God solely redeems man through Father, uh, Son, and Holy Ghost. So there is a type of threeness operationally or soteriologically speaking. But just like with any any economy, one person can inhabit and do different roles in an economy. Uh, so when you say mask or many people are lean toward the prosopon type approach, I believe that the one true God is our father uh, in essence, who he is and the one true God who is our father has incarnated himself and revealed himself in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, thus the hypostatic union from my worldview. I believe that same God has sent his spirit that indwells in us invisibly. Some use mask, which from a definition standpoint, uh, persona uh, is the actual ancient understanding of the word, which uh, if he would have said person, it would have been what the apostles would have understood. Interestingly enough, uh, if my mind is not failing me, uh, but I do believe uh, that these are manifestations. Some use the category of the actor on a stage, uh, which I think can represent manifestation. But I believe the one person is God, the father that has revealed himself in the son by incarnation and has sent his same spirit within us to indwell us, so to speak. Okay. Thank you. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to this one here. I'm trying to pick different people as well. Some people have given uh, multiple questions. So I'm trying to pick different people first. Uh, let's go with this one here. Breakfast Gun has stated, uh, considering the hypostatic union, what do you suppose happened to Christ's human nature if he came as the Holy Spirit? Was the hypostatic union separated? We'll let you start off with that one there. Sure, sure. Sounds like a very well-oiled question. Uh, again, the hypostatic union, uh, the perfect permanent union of truly divine, truly human, uh, to take the words uh, from Chalcedon, if I will. 
Uh, the hypostatic union from a oneness worldview point is a permanent fixture. It's something that will always be seen. We will forever see God perfectly revealed solely through the man, Jesus Christ. Uh, the God is the light. Christ or the lamb is the lamp, according to the NET. Uh, now, as it relates to his human nature, and I believe I was talking with a reformed friend about this, uh, as it relates to the hypostatic union in the eschaton. Uh, to be honest, the scripture tells us that he will forever be revealed, but the scripture doesn't give us all of the details of how the hypostatic union is going to work in the eschaton. And I believe this is true from a oneness and Trinitarian standpoint. Uh, I do forever believe that the man Christ Jesus is human nature is going to forever be truly united to divinity. But what that looks like, uh, and, and if I'm understanding your question correctly, uh, it, and, 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 I, and I took it as you're asking more about the eschaton, but uh, if you're asking about the Holy Spirit, again, from our viewpoint, the Holy Spirit is just simply the spirit of God, the father. Uh, if I'm not misconstruing your question and hopefully uh, I'm not doing that, but I don't I would never project a separation of the hypostatic union. Yeah, I'm going to read it again. Considering the hypostatic union, what do you suppose happened? to Christ's nature if he came as the Holy Spirit was the hypostatic union. So first off, the hypostatic union from the biblical point of view is that when Christ Jesus, he pre-existed, was with the Father, came into this world, took on flesh, became like one of us, Philippians chapter 2, with all our likenesses and for a time, set aside his glory. And when he was here, he spoke the words of the Father, um, revealed the Father, and then at some point we see in John 17, he says, Father, glorify me together now with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So we see this glory that Jesus had prior, but then he took on man, mankind. So he was fully divine, but also fully man. Then if, from what's been shared, if he then turns or not turns, but he is the Holy Spirit to come. What, what then happened to his human nature, if you will? Um, I would see that being somewhat problematic if I understand the question correctly, because Jesus, and we didn't talk about this directly, so I don't want to, I don't like sharing things we didn't talk about too much directly because I don't think that's fair for either of us. But uh, when he's now in the heavenly realm, he's glorified. He is glorified, but he also is still the spiritual new man, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15. And so he still has the scars in his hands, as we see, but he's also fully glorified. And now this, this new kind of understanding that we don't, even, we don't even fully grasp yet. So how then could he be the Holy Spirit? I think that would actually rule out him being the Holy Spirit, because that would then just not make biblical sense to me from where I'm coming from. So I think I'll leave it at that. All right, uh, let's move on to another question here. Let me just see, there's all kinds of stuff going on here. Um, nope, we have somebody. Okay, that's not, not, not that bad, okay. Um, some of you guys are giving some seriously Greek, or sorry, Hebrew questions. I'm not going to go to those right now because that's not really the topic tonight. I want to stay on the topic as much as we can in regards to the Spirit and Jesus. So, some of you guys have been asking questions that aren't related to that. If it was a different kind of Trinity oneness debate, then I would welcome these, but it's more, I want to stay focused on what we're looking at here. 
So um, let's go to this one over here from Joy again. This is from Joy. We'll give her a second crack here. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, God of Jesus, how do you interpret this? Is there at times we must identify Jesus, the man distinct, then the divine nature if Jesus? So that's Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Let's just see what that says. I'm talking here, and I'll go first to give you the second crack at it. All right, so Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4 states, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And I think that's just a simple statement. Even verse um, 1, Paul states, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that twice from God the Father, and then it says God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting. So this would tie into, I guess, who Jesus is, um, though directly it isn't mentioned here with the Holy Spirit, but still nonetheless, who is Jesus? I would say that um, in regards to this, just letting the text speak for itself, once again, with most, if not all of Paul's opening salutations and greetings here, he always talks about God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're seeing this here at times that we must identify Jesus as the man, and then at times Jesus as the, the divine one, what seems to be the oneness perspective would be that um, at times Jesus is speaking from his human, and then at times he's speaking from the Father's perspective, the Father in him. So to me, that again becomes very confusing because then we have to try to read different things into verses that I don't think are implied. Brandon, are you still with us? Yes, sir, I am. Just uh, having some camera. Challenges there, but yeah, I think when you're looking at the uh, pastoral uh, a bit at the epistles opening, from my viewpoint, God can be referenced, uh, acknowledging uh, the incarnation as far as Him and the Father as being the Son. Sometimes you have the epistle saying, uh, "Thanks be to God and the Father," uh, and then you know, so we wouldn't suppose that God is separate from the Father. I just think these are different or ancient ways in the. Still there with his camera. Now it looks like even sound issues. So I think we're just going to wrap it up for this evening. So for those of you who've been here the whole time, thank you so much. Um, from the Trinitarian perspective and also the oneness people being here, I hope that you guys enjoyed our very respectful discussion. Discussing is Jesus the Holy Spirit. Please like this video. If you're new to this channel, please subscribe. And then when this video is eventually um, ready to be you know, done, leave a comment. Leave some comments from what you thought from this discussion slash debate, from what I shared, what Brandon shared, and any additional insights, what you'd like to add to the discussion in regards to the topic. Try to stay on topic, though. That's my, my uh, thing here is that trying to be uh, addressed. I didn't see your question, Word, Word Warrior. You want to type it out again? What was your question? I never saw it. I missed it. 
So I may have missed some that were there. So if you've got it really quick and you can type it out within a, a few seconds, it isn't too complicated. Um, unfortunately, he is not here, meaning um, he pronoun, he, not me, he, Brandon. Ah, ha, ha, see how pronouns work? I love it. Um, yes. Um, if you want to ask there. So here your question was right on. So here's your question. So uh, this was addressed by both of us, actually. So um, this was actually a question that was asked by uh, him earlier to me so I can answer it to you. The scripture says in John 14 that the Father and the Son will make their abode in us. Talking about that, we also see how the Holy Spirit would be future tense, come to indwell us. John 14, 17. We see that John 7, 39 states that those who believed in Jesus were to receive the Holy Spirit later because Jesus wasn't yet glorified, meaning he wasn't resurrected. Once Jesus was resurrected, he then gave and breathed into his disciples in John 20, 22. So therefore, as born-again Christians, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all three dwelling with us. All right, guys. Well, thank you for being here. Brandon, if you're out there somewhere, thank you for being here. Appreciate it. I'll edit some of this a little bit later when I get a chance, some of the quiet moments. But thank you guys for being here. Uh, again, please like this video, subscribe, and leave a comment on this video afterwards. Whether you didn't like me or not, that's fine. Just be respectful. Leave some comments for both of us. I appreciate that. All right. As always, everybody out there who know my channel, Lord bless you. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord bless you. separate